Welcome everyone to the final Magic Sandwich Show of 2012 and what an extraordinary year it's been. I've made a note of some of the guests that we've had on during the course of the show and I have to say it's an awesome list. Andy Thompson, Dr. Lona Frank, David Silverman, Richard Dawkins, Sean Fairclough, Phil Moriarty. There were other low points such as Saiten Bruton, Kate and Eric Hovind and Samuel and Rolf Lamper, the creationists from Sweden, but I guess they were quite interesting. Uh, Michael Payton, theoretical bullshit and the backbone of the whole show, uh, Concordance and Thunderfoot. And we have managed to get some of those uh, who have appeared previously on the show back on. Uh, including uh, David Silverman, who will be going to very shortly. And we also have lined up a non-stamp collector who will be joining us later on the show. It's about five o'clock in the morning where he is, so it'll be a couple of hours, I think, before he gets out of bed. And we'll also have Phil Moriarty back uh, towards the end of the show uh, as well. So um, I'm very much looking forward to it. I'm going to start off with uh, David Silverman. It's been uh, one hell of a year for you, David. Uh, what's Talk us through it and which have been the highlights for you. Well, obviously, um, by far, the highlight of the year was the Reason Rally. Uh, you know, that was something that I've been working on with uh, most of the other leaders of the movement for uh, up to two years. It was a two-year effort. Uh, and we got, you know, 30,000 people, 30,000 smiling atheists in the rain, which is more than we had expected. We were talking about 10,000 people. We were talking, you know, maybe 15,000. And we got 30,000 in the rain. Um, that was, uh, you know, the epic event of the year. So, you know, certainly um, the most fun weekend I've had. Uh, and it's something, and, you know, we're, we're going to have another one in 2016. And the, the Reason Rally Coalition lives on. And everybody is excited about the future. I think, however, um, the biggest plus from the Reason Rally, um, uh, you know, there were so many victories from that. The biggest plus was that it was the first time that all of the organizations in the movement got together and did something uh, at once, at the same time, with money involved uh, toward a common goal. And not only did, it, did we survive through it, but we triumphed and we kicked ass. It was an absolutely spectacular experience. With all of us working together um, with, you know, with me and Andy Laurie Gaylor and Roy Speckard and uh, Ron Lindsay and, and, uh, and Margaret Downey all working together uh, to create this, this incredible event. So, you know, if, if I were to put together the highlights of the, of 2012, um, I've got other highlights that I'll talk about, but the Reason Rally sits above all of that. Uh, the Reason Rally was the bee's knees as far as I'm concerned. Well, we'll come, um, on, to other, we'll come on to other highlights, but let's just actually, stick on. Deep, yeah, if, I, if I may, I think that deserves a round of applause. Yay! <laughs> uh, I, I want to stick on okay, the Reason you've, Rally. You've got, a, you've got one, one fan in the crowd. I want to stick on the Reason Rally for the moment because I know that um, for Seth Andrews, who has now just joined us, uh, that was a highlight as well. What are your comments about the Reason Rally, Seth? Well, you know, I have never in my life ever gone on a type of Woodstock pilgrimage. You know, you always hear about people talking about they, they, they went to an event to be part of something. And I always, you know, those of us who were not a part of the 60s, I was born in the 60s. for I just never really got it. But I, I remember when I heard about the Reason Rally, I thought, I, I, I must be a part of it. I have to be there. 
And I remember buying my plane ticket. I went by myself, didn't have anybody here. I was going, I know some Tulsa people went, but I, I just sort of went. And, and I, you know, I just went and I took a camera and, um, and I just thought, whatever happens, what, whatever happens, however it happens, I just want to be there and see it firsthand. And it is the only time in my life I've ever really had that feeling about an event. And I walked away, not disappointed, but really encouraged and empowered. And I thought, you know, it was drizzly. It was chilly. I mean, many people would say, oh, my God, it was misery. Everybody was smiling. Everybody was engaged. Everybody felt like they, you know, and look, I got 20,000 people around me who don't think I'm nuts. I have 20,000 people around me who get me, who understand that I, you know, I want to live my life truthfully, no matter how inconvenient. And you should have seen the T-shirts and the and the people were, were fun and funny. And there was sort of a communal atmosphere. And I, I rode that high for weeks. I rode it for weeks. And if they have another one in whatever year that is, I'm I'm in. I'm totally there. David, um, go, let's go back to you. Uh, that's obviously praise indeed. By the way, uh, Seth, great videos on the Reason Rally. I, I must tell you, you did some great work for the videos on the Reason Rally, and I really appreciate it. Uh, Thank also- you. I, I was, I, I was, I thought. Yeah, we all try to play to our gifts, and I was thinking, how can I help? <laughs> and so I, I just wanted to to try to mark the day. I think we I did a promo for the event, and um, and we did like a recap, a, sort of a. Uh, see the event through one guy's eyes kind of experience video after the fact. And I was very proud of both of them. And, and I, I honestly, it was, it was an honor that you guys showed them and, and, and used them. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. And, and, and also, i got to uh, acknowledge Thunderfoot and Christina Rod and Aaron, who put together uh, the promo video and the promo video contest uh, for the Reason Rally. They, they, you know, like I said, this, this was an incredible team effort. And uh, I'm I'm really really proud of how it came out. Pleasure. You mentioned other highlights, uh, David. Let's um, hear a few well, of those. Well, we we followed the Reason Rally with our largest American atheist convention ever, um, and it was our most fun American atheist convention ever. Uh, one of the things that I feel very strong about is that conventions need to be fun. They need to be informative. They need to be empowering but they also need to be fun. Um, the reason that I have this opinion is because uh, when I first started going to these conventions, I didn't go to many of the speakers. I didn't find them all that interesting way back then. And the reason I kept going was because the people were awesome. And, and uh, so we put together a convention that followed the Reason Rally um, that turned out to be bigger than TAM. Uh, we had 1,350 people. And it was, uh, again, it was uh, 1,350 smiling faces running up and down the halls, cheering for standing ovations for almost every speaker. It was, it was great. We had a costume dinner uh, party um, and, uh, you know, and, and a, uh, it was just such a great social experience. So we really had a good time with that. Um, if I may, other- that was also the... Uh- the event that, if I recall, it was where Teresa McBain came out, right? She made her first public statement of non-belief, and the entire audience of a 1,000 people just hugged her with their applause and with their, their enthusiasm. Wasn't that emotional? I mean, that was so great to see. I mean, there, there are so many closeted atheists who come to the American Atheist Convention longing for that sense of accomplishment, and to see a pastor abandon her career 
because it's a lie and because she knows that she was doing something immoral by staying in that lie. Um, and to come out and to be welcomed by the whole community like that was just so stirring. And I, um, I, I'm so proud of Teresa for, for being able to do that. And of course, Mike Owls, who did it just before that. And of course, Jerry DeWitt, who did it first. Uh, it was just such a stirring experience. Um, something that I'll remember forever. Uh, I just loved it. And then, of course, Teresa came to work for American Atheists, um, and, uh, and and she's been uh, a jewel since then. The other thing that uh, has happened, um, of course, you know, if we if we shift gears a little bit, uh, American Atheists did win a lawsuit uh, at the Supreme Court uh, for, uh, earlier in March uh, when the state of Utah tried to put crosses up on the side of the road because crosses are not religious symbols. They tried that to was play. hilarious, by the way. Yeah, that, it wasn't that. I don't think hilarious is the word underfoot. I think I think the word is insidious. They they and, they, they represent a philosophy, not a religion. I, I don't know right. what the problem is. Yeah, it's amazing how much um, they will say they support the government of the United States and at the same time try to usurp it by lying by lying and by using dead cops as a shield. Oh, you're attacking the crosses on public road. You're attacking the families of dead cops. How dare you do that? How dare you atheists stoop so low as to attack the dead cops that we're using as a shield to declare the cross secular uh, so that we can put it up in schools and federal buildings without regard to the Constitution. How dare you atheists do such a terrible un-American thing? It was it made me so angry to, to do this case because all they had to do to make this case go away was to say, oh, yeah, if a Jew, if a Jewish cop dies, we'll put up a Jewish star. They wouldn't. If, if, if an atheist cop dies, we'll put up something else. They wouldn't. They insisted that all the memorials had to be 12 foot tall steel crosses because the cross is secular. And that's, it, it was complete bullshit. I mean, let, let's, just, let's just put it on the table. It was a lie. It was a scheming, immoral lie. Horrible, horrible thing to do. Uh, and American atheists took them all the way to the Supreme Court and won. Thank you very much. So uh, we protected the schools. Of, as soon as that act, as soon as that went off and as soon as it became precedent, you know... I, I, I'll just I, I don't say it, so I'll just say, you know that when a school tragedy happened, the next thing that would happen would be the secular cross would be appearing on school grounds. And then we'd be fighting against that children to take that school, to take that cross off. So, and, and given the, the, the tragedy in Newtown, you can certainly see where that might have happened. And uh, it we have to realize that our adversaries um, are not Christian people. They're Christian organizations. And these organizations are not friendly. They're not nice. They're not honest. They're not ethical. The Christian people are fine, but the Christian organizations sometimes behave in extremely unethical ways, and it falls to us to defend the Constitution. And to defend the non-religious population, and it's, it, it it bothers me so much that we had to fight the Utah case. 
because it was so slimy. It was so sneaky and so slimy. Um, and well, that, well, I think uh, I, I think it's one of those things though that when you actually um, when this is played out on the public stage, and you do get these Christians who turn up and with a straight face claim that the cross is a secular symbol and not a Christian one, they come across as slimy. I mean, it's just so outrageously detached from right. reality. It, the, the cross is a religious symbol. It's been a religious symbol for 2,000 years. It's not a secular symbol. And for the, these people purporting to... I mean, I agree with you that the the um, using the the cops, to you know, the dead cops... Um, to emotionally blackmail people, that that's really cheap. But I mean, um, yeah, I I think um, they dig their own grave um, making silly claims like that. I, I think they do. And you know, I went on during the the height of that case. I was asked to go on to the Catholic radio network, and this is something that I'll, I'll remember for a long time. Uh, the Catholic radio network was on satellite radio. Um, they treated me extremely well. And they said, you know, Dave, you know, at the beginning of the show, they said, you know, Dave, um, you're on a Catholic radio network, you're closing the cross, you're, you're in the lion's den now. And I said, that's okay. I'm going to convince you all that I'm right. And they said, okay. And I proceeded to do it. And the callers came in, all, all of the callers came in expressing the opinion that I was right and that the cross is Christian. Of course it's Christian. Because they're not stupid people. They're just wrong. They're just wrong about their religion. And they're victims of their indoctrination. They're not stupid people. And they know bullshit when they see it and when they hear it. And when I went on O'Reilly, you made an, uh, uh, um, made a reference to it earlier. When I went on O'Reilly, and O'Reilly said, oh, Christianity is a philosophy. I got calls from Christians telling me I was right, not that they not that they agreed with me, but that I was right, that I was not a fascist, and that Christianity is, of course, a religion. And, you know, so I think you're right, Thunder, but I think uh, the people do see it. And I think what we're seeing is a panic, not from the Christian people, but from the Christian organizations who are being forced to deal with the equality issue are being forced to deal with the fact that they are anti-equality and that their position is anti-equality. And there is no good defense for an anti-equality position in a free country. I just want to say that I'm very grateful that there are people out there like you, David, that are willing to do this because I, and I know I'm not alone, feel very squeamish about these kinds of legal proceedings and the, the PR perception that they create, that people are going to see... Um, you know, atheism is all about attacking Christianity, the war on Christmas, the, you know, we can't have our crosses, even though that these, these men were Christians, it's, uh, you know, restrictions on what we can do. Um, and I really hadn't made the connection or the distinction between the organizations and the people, but I've seen the same thing in the creationist circles, and particularly the, the Discovery Institute, which has its spokespeople saying things that they don't truly even believe as a strategic um, maneuver, uh, you know, because all of this is going to end up in court and it's going to be arbitrated in court. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad that there are people that understand the, the legal proceedings better than I do that, that are in a position where they can respond. 
because I, I don't think most of us think in those terms. We think in terms of tell the truth or don't tell the truth. Uh, and of course, in, in a <laughs> in a legal situation, the the, the the distinctions are much finer. And, and, and it, it's, it's the exact same situation that's happening in the World Trade Center. Okay, in the World Trade Center, they took a 20-foot cross. Now, just look at this for a second. Okay, the the World Trade Center was built on cross beams. Okay, hundreds of cross beams survived the fall. They took one, they straightened it. They repaired it. They took that thing off on one of the arms. They took it off. They repaired. They put it back on. They looked nice. Uh, carved Jesus in the top of it. Carved prayers along the side. Put it in front of a church for five years. Collected donations. Then, in a ceremony led solely by a priest, lowered it into the memorial. The priest lowered it in in a religious ceremony consecrated the public ground on which the memorial sits and then looked at the world and said, this is not a religious symbol. It's crap. It's a 20-foot tall religious cross, 20 feet. Now, most ceilings are 10 feet. So just think about it. It's a 20-foot tall steel cross in the World Trade Center, and they're saying it's secular. And when we say no... It's religious, and you have to represent the atheists who died on 9-11. Well, guess what? We're fighting against the families of the people who died on 9-11. We're fighting on the side of the terrorists and for, 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 for taking the stand. We're, we're, we're taking a stand for equality and, you know, the Constitution, the American law, the American state. We are taking the stand against equality for their unequal representation of Christianity in the World Trade Center Memorial. That's crap, and it's a lie, and we need people to see it. And the good news is that a lot of people do. The good news is that people are seeing quite clearly that this is a religious monument. I mean, it's clearly a religious thing, um, and, uh, and we're, we're filing that lawsuit. We did file that lawsuit uh, because that's also a clear win. It's also a clear endorsement of one religion over another in the worst place possible. The monument of the World Trade Center, this is where they want to have a battle. This is where they want to have a religious battle. Let me tell you what we're asking for in this battle. We are asking for a, 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 another, we're asking for equal representation. And in order to get equal representation, you can take the cross out or, or, you can take an existing, uh, an existing artifact, an existing exhibit, and dedicate it to the atheists. A plaque. A plaque makes the lawsuit go away. Just like saying, we'll allow a Star of David if the dead cop who dies is a, is a Jew, a plaque um, will make this whole lawsuit go away. Why won't they do that? because they want a Christian monopoly in the World Trade Center. That's their objective. And they want to secularize the cross. Again, that's their objective. If they want to make this lawsuit go away, this lawsuit's going to cost over a million dollars to go to the, to, the, to the Supreme Court, which it will. All they have to do is say, oh yeah, atheists died too. Here's a plaque. American atheists will pay for the plaque. They won't do it because that's not their actual intent. 
they want monopoly for Christianity in the World Trade Center Memorial. It's scummy, it's slimy, and it's wrong. And that's why we're fighting that as well. But it's the same thing. You see, concordance, it's the same thing. They are just using tragedy to use it as a shield so that they can kind of push more Christianity in our way, so that they can actually Christianize 9-11. That's what we're stopping, and that's what we're going to continue to stop. So I'm very happy that, um, that we, we were filing that lawsuit as well, and I'm glad you understand concordance, because this is something, you know, from a public relations standpoint, it's the worst thing we can do. It's the worst thing we can do. To file any complaint against 9-11, it's, it's the worst thing we can do. But it's also absolutely mandatory. But let's not forget, they're the bad guys using 9-11 for their own gain. And we're the good guys protecting the Constitution and everybody else from the religionists, not all religionists, not all Christians, but the Christians who, the Christian organizations who want to be given relevance, given priority by having a, a, an artifact, or a, by having a, uh, a, a Christian symbol and nobody else in the memorial. It's kind of scummy, and I'm glad we're fighting that fight. Uh, it's, it's one of those things. If I were a Christian, I'm not so sure I would want a cross taken from the ruins of where 3,000 people died in that it's more or less a monument to the... Um, impotence of their God. Um, you know, it, it's one of those uh, 3,000 people died and all I got was this cross salvaged out of the ruins. I mean, is uh, what, what does that say about um, this God of yours? And, and that's exactly right. I mean, the, the God, I mean, you can imagine God sitting there, this omniscient God sitting there watching, doing nothing, letting the planes crash into the buildings, let all those people die, and then, oh, here's, here's, a, here's a cross to let you know I love you. What a waste. Why in the world would anybody pray to such a God? Such a useless, impotent God. Or a non-existent God. You can pick. Either God is useless and impotent, or he's non-existent. I'm going to go back to the reason, Riley, when we take our first caller, uh, who is Carter, uh, and just to remind people, we will be coming to uh, the Thinking Atheist and Dark Matter very shortly. Uh, David probably only has another five or ten minutes left for us, uh, which is why I'm concentrating on him at the moment. But we will be coming to our other two special guests. But I know that Carter wanted to raise a point about the reason, Riley. Carter. Uh, yeah. Um, well, I was under the, the, under the uh, impression that this was a recap of 2012 and some of the best moments. Um, and that was most definitely one of mine. Uh, Oh, super. Thanks, David. Thanks, actually, everyone who's involved in that. Um, I don't know. Uh, I mean, everything that I wanted to say has already kind of been said. It was just, I mean, it was a really shitty day. I was expecting it to be awesome. It was overcast the whole day, and it just fucking rained the whole time. And, and then I got there really early, and, and then I had to keep my spot because I didn't want to lose my spot. So I didn't go to the bathroom, so I'm just, like, standing there the whole day. And then, and then the guy behind me starts throwing up. And, and it was just like, oh, fucking A. But, but it, was, it was just one of the best times of my life this whole year. It was really, like, all these horrible things happened. But I don't, I've never been in a, such a large community of people that at least shared one thing in common. And it was just, I don't know. It was, I've only ever been, like, one-on-one. -on -one. And since that, like, I felt more comfortable with, with coming out in public, which is really, it was something like at work, 
I had a conversation with a buddy, uh, and he discovered that I was an atheist. And then I found out he was too. And I was like, oh, sweet, now we have this mutual thing. And then we found out a third coworker, she's an atheist, and her father uh, also went to the Reason Rally. And I was like, wow, this community of people that I work with almost every day, I never even knew. And I don't know, this, that, this, that kind of this stuff. Must, uh, this must warm your heart, David. Well, this was the point. This was the point. I, I, I still get emails um, from people telling me that they, they went back to school, there was no SSA. Uh, organization in school, so they started one. They they looked for a meetup, they found a meetup. They didn't find a meetup, they started a meetup. Um, this was the point, and uh, it, to say that it warms my heart is such an understatement. It's um, it, it's the best thing that I've done so far in my life, uh, and uh, it's certainly something that um, I'm I'm thrilled to have been able. Uh, to to lead the um, the, the other uh, organi the other organizers the the equal board members uh, in the uh, in the um, in the Reason Rally board uh, they worked with me uh, and they worked with me in, in in great you know you know in great earnest and uh, so I, I I feel wonderful about it from all different directions um, and uh, it, I couldn't. I can't tell you how how much uh, happiness I derive from hearing stories about people who went back and came out, who, who uh, went back and came out and found others who had, who came out. Um, this is uh, the explosion that we are seeing. Uh, this is it. This is the some you know this is the the critical mass, as Richard Dawkins said. This is it. Um, by the time we're all old people. Uh, the country will be different. The country will be more secular. We are going to see the country evolve. Um, and the Reason Rally had a, had a part um, in that. And uh, I'm, really, uh, I'm really thrilled to have, uh, I'm, I'm really proud and I'm really thrilled and it, it still chokes me up to this day to hear stories like that. Dark matter. Um, can you guys hear me okay? I had my, I'm not sure, sure if I'm Perfectly, yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> David, first I wanted to, to thank you and, and also to ask a question to, to thank you for putting your neck out there. I, um, also because uh, I know more than most uh, what you probably have to deal with. My grandfather was a very outspoken activist um, in like the early 80s uh, when I was just a little kid. Uh, he he was involved with a big lawsuit to have this huge cross um, removed from a public park near our house. And he was a, he was in the real estate. He owned a lot of properties around there. And, you know, his, his tax money was going towards, you know, paying for religious decorations everywhere. And as an atheist, he didn't like that. And, you know, the, the, it was a big um, dramatic thing. The whole town got involved um, he lost the case. Um, they think that there was a lot of pressure on the judge, you know, the whole town to show up at the court. And it, and it went to the appellate court, and he won in a matter of minutes. Uh, they overturned the decision, and the cross was promptly moved to a church where it belongs. And what happened afterward was this deluge of threats against our lives, against the lives of his family, against me, a little kid. Uh, 
this was before the days of caller ID, you know, where he'd get these calls all day, every day, and he'd write down, you know, as quickly as he could, the time, you know, what was said. And, you know, and after my grandfather died many years later, like um, 1998, um, you know, and, and we're going through his stuff. And, you know, I'm just flipping through this notebook and seeing all these death threats against him and, you know, his family for something as trivial as a, as a cross on a, on a, in a park. And I wonder what, what kind of, do you get these kind of threats, you know, from people? I mean, I wonder what your mail must look like sometimes. Um, yeah, I do. Uh, I, I get a lot of threats. Uh, some of them seem uh, very real, um, especially around the, the Christmas time. Every time I go on, Fox News, um, but so this this December, uh, I've had a lot of death threats, and they are death threats against me, and you know they're going to get my family too, um, and we had to file uh, a lot of paperwork and and all sorts of stuff, and I've got security system in my house, and uh, I am a gun owner, and it sucks. It sucks because you know they don't realize how. Uh, well, they don't realize that I'm the good guy. They don't realize that we're the good guys, that all we're asking for and demanding is the equality that's guaranteed to us in the Constitution. Um, so, yeah, the, the threats are, are, are frequent, sometimes constant. Um, and it's discouraging. It's also encouraging because that's panic. Uh, it's discouraging because... Yes, I have to have a super security system in my house, and yes, I have to, uh, you know, lock up American Atheist headquarters extra tight and have the security cameras all around there. It's it's discouraging, um, and I wish it would stop, but it's not going to stop me. Uh, I have been the, the the threats are almost always empty. Uh, I have been told that if I ever went on television again, I'd be shot. Um, and then I went on television again, and I wasn't shot. Uh, it's it's discouraging, and it's hateful, and it's it's horrible. It's horrible. It's the worst side of religion, right? That's what we're all fighting. It's not the we're not fighting the good side of religion. We're not fighting the helping people enjoy to the world. We're fighting the bad part of religion, which is the people who are so brainwashed that they get violent when they're challenged. And uh, this is something that um, it, it, it's going to be par for the course. It will fade over time, um, and we still will win. And I think the most important thing that people need to understand is that um, if I do get shot, there are people behind me who will take my place um, and perhaps do what I do better. Um, and I think that's uh, what's going on. Now, there have been no attempts on my life, but there have been many, many threats, and uh, I'm not the only one, but I get the impression that I'm getting out the brunt of them, and it's kind of sucky, Concordance. but it's not going to stop me. The, the one thing that concerns me, David, and this, is, this has been my, my one concern, is that with, with American Atheists leading the charge, it looks as though it is sort of atheism attacking religion as opposed to defending the principle of secularism on which our, our society is based, it would be, I think, 
a better PR position if we had, say, you know, uh, with this, the Coalition for the Separation of Church and State. There are a number of organizations which are not explicitly atheist, which which champion secular causes. You know, even the ACLU. Um, what what worries me in terms of a PR nightmare, and I, again, I'm I'm glad you're out there challenging these things, is that it appears to be a unilateral war, and that's certainly how it's positioned on Fox News, between religious and the non-religious, as opposed to you know a unified principle that at least in in my area, if we had prayer in schools, it would be a Catholic uh, Catholic prayer. Right, and all the Hindu kids, and all the Muslim kids, and all the the kids with uh, religious affiliations other than uh, Catholicism would would certainly not like that, including all the Southern Baptists. I don't understand why it has to be atheist versus religious. It really should be uh, people of all faiths and and none uh, coming together for for what is a, a fundamental concept in, in a plural society. Well, that's an excellent question. Uh, the answer is that it should be all of the above. The answer is that if we just concentrated on the separation of church and state, which uh, Americans United does with excellence, um, there would be uh, a much longer road to atheist equality. American atheists is a firm and staunch supporter of the absolute separation of church and state, but we are about atheists. And that means that we have to erase the bigotry against atheists, and that means we have to erase the um, myth that atheists don't exist. And if you go back maybe even five years, maybe seven years, you will come to a point in time where most people did not think there were a, a substantial amount of atheists in this country. Um, so American atheists takes the stance of atheism uh, against against theism in our face. We're not out to destroy atheism. We're not out to destroy theism, rather. We've never taken a stance against theism or against anybody's right to believe. We always take a separation of church and state stance, but we do it from the perspective of equality, atheist equality. And that's what we're going for here. Now, Fox News will portray us as Fox News portrays us. Um, and they're going to do that whether we say something or not. One of the things that we've learned from Fox News is that they will paint, and, and, and it's not just Fox News, you can see it from the, from the, uh, from the Pope as well. Uh, it's the evil atheists against religions. Now, now that's not true, but that's what they're portraying it as. And even if we sit silent, that's still what they're going to portray it as. So we won't sit silent and we'll go on television and we'll say, hey, this is about equality. This is about atheists uh, coming out of a closet. Um, you know, I, I go on these, these, these shows with, with O'Reilly and with Hannity, and I simply make the, you know, and they say, you're a fascist. And I say, I'm demanding equality, which is a constitutional right. And, and Christians call me and tell me I'm right. So, yeah, it, it's, it's, yeah, American atheists, clearly, emphatically, does not uh, represent all atheists. Clearly and emphatically, I state American atheists and David Silverman does not represent all atheists. Uh, but we do represent ourselves, and we do have a voice. And our voice is equality for atheists now, not because we're requesting it, 
because we are fucking demanding it. And that's the position that we take. And if you're into a softer side of that, um, that's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with disagreeing with our position. Uh, the American Humanist Association is a great organization. CFI is a great organization. They take a softer side. Um, maybe you'll feel more at home with them. But as far as uh, the answer to your question, why do we have to take this position, the answer to your question is we all have to take our positions because we all have the right to say it and we all need to be heard so that the message that the atheism movement is broad can get out there. A good example is the recent article on CNN about the, uh, the billboard we just put up in, um, in Times Square where we said, uh, keep the married, jump the myth. And they compared that to Greg Epstein over at Harvard Humanists doing some uh, food drive, I believe it was, with some churches. Well, I hate to say it, but that article isn't getting, getting written, and Greg Epstein's group is not getting any publicity without the Mary Dump the Myth in, in Times Square. Okay? The comparison isn't getting out there unless there's something to compare to. The breadth isn't getting out there unless there's something to talk about. So Harvard Humanists got some really good publicity on CNN because of the American Atheists' harder nose, a harder line billboard in Times Square. That's the big point. Everybody sees everything and everybody talks. What is uh, in, in store for American Atheists in 2013? And you know, it's gonna, 2012 is going to be a difficult year to, uh, to follow. But secondly, as well, if you may, you mentioned several times your uh, obvious optimism that the tide is turning. Um, are, are there any figures to support your optimism? Well, every figure supports our optimism. Um, every poll that comes out shows that atheism is rising in Christianity and religious decline. Uh, the growth of the nuns is huge. And make no mistake, I do contend that most of the nuns are atheists. I do make that position that those people who are spiritual just need to be sat down and reasoned with for two or three minutes to become atheists. Just ask them, well, do you believe that or do you wish it were true? And that's kind of like a magic question. So um, I point to every single bullet uh, out there, but I also point to my personal experience. And my personal experience, I don't know if you can see this, I'm wearing uh, an Atheist and Foxhole sweatshirt. And my personal experience is I am that guy who wears Atheist stuff to the airport everywhere I go. I wear Atheist stuff. I am a walking, talking atheist billboard, and it used to be that I got stopped all the time with negative comments. I haven't gotten stopped with a negative comment in three years, three years, and that is wearing atheist stuff to every airport in the Midwest, in the South, everywhere. Three years, there'll be a stop telling me anything bad. They always give me a thumbs up. I get thumbs up. I get comments positive all the time now, comments from the security people in line, from people in line who are waiting to go through security, from the, wait, from the, from the, um, from the flight attendants. The attitude is palpable and changeable. And uh, yes, I'm talking about personal experience, so it's not scientifically valid, but it's still how I support the position. We are 
Oh, and if you want to talk numbers, just look at the Secular Student Alliance. Um, the, um, the Secular Student Alliance is exploding, and the Pew research that just came out that said that for the first time, more than half of the Americans would vote for a president who is an atheist. That's not the important part of that Pew research. Everybody was talking about that piece of the Pew research. The most important part of that Pew research was that 70% of the under 30 crowd would vote for an atheist president. And that means that in 20 years, 70% of the under 50 crowd will vote for an atheist president, assuming no growth. So it's coming up, the young people are, are our people. And I'll just say it, the old people are dying. And, uh, and so the, every, every pointer that I see is pointing in the right direction, and every personal experience that I'm having is pointing in the right direction. And so that's something that I'm, I'm extremely, I'm really confident with. I'm really confident. We got 30,000. Seth used the wrong number. The number was 30,000 at the region rally. It's incredible. In the rain. That was the largest atheist event in world history by a factor of 10. That's crazy. It's explosive. And we're all in the middle of the part of it. And we're all part of it. And yeah, I am running short on time, so I'm just going to uh, skip the one last, uh, two last things that I'd like to mention. Um, one is that the convention in Austin, the hotel is about to sell out. Okay, we're about to max out the hotel block. We're going to have to go to an overflow hotel. It's going to be a fantastic convention, and most importantly, it's going to be fun. It's going to be a blast, and we're putting in a whole bunch of stuff to make sure that people not only come out empowered and, and, and more knowledgeable, but with a great big smile on their face. And uh, that's on um, March 28th through 30th. I am hoping that this is going to be larger than the convention in Washington, D.C. We're hoping for 1,500 people at this convention. Uh, and that's where our max out point is. Um, so that's uh, Easter weekend in March. The one last thing that I'd like to mention is something that I'm extremely proud of and we've been working on for a while, and that is the American Atheist Lawsuit Against the IRS, which we just filed last week, which is an attack, which is a defense, rather, against a discrimination against atheists in the Internal Revenue Service. Right now, religious institutions are different from other 501c3 institutions. As a 501c3 educational organization, American Atheist reports its income, reports how we spend our money, and reports our major donors. The religious organizations out there do not report their income, do not report their salaries. So my salary is public knowledge, but Pat Robertson's is not. And how, much, how American Atheist spends its money is public knowledge, and how the 700 Club spends its money is not public knowledge. They actually get to not file their forms. It costs American Atheist and every other secular organization money, and it costs religious organizations none, and the only difference is because it's religious. And we think that needs to go away. And we are we have put together a fantastic winnable, solid lawsuit that will go to the Supreme Court, I'm sure, and it will attack the religious exemptions for 501c3s. No, this is not an attempt to tax the church. 
This is an attempt to equalize the code so that the churches file the same paperwork as non-religious institutions uh, and pay the same fees as non-religious institutions. Most importantly, declare their income just like everybody else. Declare how they spend their money just like everybody else. This is a long, long time coming lawsuit and we have a $100,000 match going on that will allow people to donate at atheists.org to cover this lawsuit and every dollar is matched one for one. This is going to be the lawsuit that affects everybody's life because we are going to equalize the tax code and the IRS. This is the lawsuit that will make it even at the Eternal Revenue Service. And we need your help, so please donate before the end of the year if you can to get your tax deduction for the end of the year. Every dollar is one for one matched, and we need your help. So thank you very much. That's what's coming down the pike. We're just going to have the biggest convention that we've ever had and the biggest lawsuit that we ever had. That's what's well, I, I, I hope to actually be in Texas in March, um, so I hope to uh, be seeing you there. But um, can I just uh, thank you very much indeed for your time. If you want to send me... Um, details of the information that you just referred to, I'll include it in the links to the description when these videos are put onto YouTube. But could I invite everyone please to give a huge thumbs up for David for taking time out um, on a busy day for him, I know. Well, there thank we you everybody, I appreciate it. Thank you very much indeed, David. I'm going to let you go. So, sorry Dark Matter, and sorry also uh, Seth for keeping you both waiting, but obviously we only had a limited amount of time with David. Not quite as limited as it indicated. Um, Dark Matter, your first time ever on the show. Welcome. Um, no, I think I was on the show a long time ago, once before. Uh, or that might have been the charity show. I think, I think I, that was the charity show. Yeah, and okay. I think you may not have been in your, you may have been in uh, disguise, so to speak. Right. <laughs> as, as, as a nephew. Um, tell us that matter. Uh, to what extent does religion play in your everyday life? Give us a, give us a background of your... Um, well, obviously, from what you were saying earlier, <coughs> not a particularly religious family background, but give us an idea of uh, how religion has played a part or any part on your, in your life. Um, well... I'm sure that the thing that happened with my grandfather early on in my life had a, a, an impact, an influence. Um, and also, I, I never really, I've always been skeptical. I never really believed in God, and I always found it interesting that, that other people did, and um, always wondering why they did. And the, my earliest memories of, of arguing about it was with some other kid in second grade, and, and I told him that, that's just another, you know, that God isn't real. It's just a, some fairy tale, you know. And uh, he, I never forget his reaction. He got this really shocked look on his face, and like I did something really bad, you know. Like I did, like I'm in trouble, you know. Like and he said, "Oh, you, you're gonna go to hell," you know. And and it just, you know, t I was just taken aback by that. You know, that's like, like like saying you're gonna get hit by an invisible piano. <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, I was totally unafraid, you know, of course, like as much as I would be of an invisible piano. But the thing that shocked me was that he seemed okay with that, you know, like 
you're completely disconnected from reality, you know, burning somebody because of something that really, I think belief is beyond your control. I mean, you can expose yourself to arguments and, and be convinced one way or another, and, and you have control of, over what you expose yourself to, but whether or not you're convinced, I, I think that's kind of beyond our control. So to punish someone for not being convinced, I think if you want to punish someone, punish the, the person who fails to convince you, you know, punish the religious people who can't convert me. But Actually, that, that's a good one. That's a good one. Um, the high pressure sales tactic. So it will be Westboro Baptist Church who suffer the worst because they were the least convincing salespeople. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I mean, even then, you know, it's like an eternity of torture. And, you know, there's a lot of religious folks who criticize me for promoting that, you know, uh, arguing against that argument. Well, you know, I'm not the one that, that came up with that, you know, talk to the fundamentalist uh, religious folks. But so I'm talking to them, not to the moderates who don't believe that sort of thing. But um, to, and then and they convince themselves that that's, that that's just, you know, and that's that's kind of like that's kind of what started me being so intrigued about these seemingly normal everyday people who think it's okay for um, people like me to be unimagin to go through unimaginable torment forever. You know, then that just fascinates me that these people are just walking around thinking that that's okay. <laughs> you know, and yeah, I mean, you know, but, but, but oh, by comparison, ahead, sorry. Uh, so yeah, by comparison, the people who ran the gas chambers were vanilla compared to this. I mean, they just killed people. They didn't like torture them for eternity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I, I think um, you know it, it belies the monster in all of us that people are happy to walk around with this idea that um, you can be a good person and talk to someone in the most agonizing pain for eternity. Let's open up this to Seth as well, because I'd be interested in his views on this. Do you think that uh, the religious believe, or those that are trying to convert you, actually believe in hell, or are they using it as a threat to persuade you, for whatever reason it is, to believe in the same way as they do? Both. I honestly believe that the vast majority of people who are, at least in my area, it's Protestant Christianity, it's Baptist, Methodist, Assembly of God, Pentecostal, what have you, are are convinced that there is a hell. Or, if nothing else, if they're not convinced, they fear there may be a hell and they don't want to be wrong. Heaven and hell are the carrot and the stick. They are the good cop and the bad cop. Heaven is your promise of reward. But hell is the punishment that awaits if you if you don't buy it and when you are raised like i was in, a, in an environment where hell is a real place my, that's a sentence my father used to say all the time hell is a real place and he desperate desperately did not want his children to go there i mean he he wanted his children to escape hell and he was desperate to raise us to to one day be reunited in heaven now dark matter who by the way i'm a big fan of your work um had mentioned sometimes he, you know, he, it, it's almost an experiment for him to try to understand how people can believe for such a long time, and it's a great question. But when you exist in essentially a closed system, where everyone around you 
speaks the same way and says the same thing and espouses the same Bible and believes in the same heaven and hell. And to be away from that, to reject that is obscene or abnormal or freakish. <laughs> then, you know, this was my normal. Believing in hell was my normal. And I genuinely did not want to go there. Now, when I see the idea of hell being taught to young children, it, it makes me livid. It just, it makes my blood boil. It is one of the primary motivating factors of the work that I do. I've done a lot of church work. And, you know, they parade these kids in and they have them all with the Sunday school teacher and there's 30 or 40 children who've been heavily marketed to, right? They've got Easter egg hunts and they've got Christmas plays and they've got music and they've got soft playgrounds and they've got cartoons and move, some, some churches build movie theaters. They're going after kids. And um, to have them bring in and essentially never give them a choice. But to say, you, you know, do you believe in Jesus? And these drones look up and say, yes. <laughs> you know, they, they don't know what they're saying. I would mentioned that. I'm almost done. I don't want to monopolize the time. But I would mentioned when I was in fourth grade and throughout my high school experience, too, they would start every chapel service with the Pledge of Allegiance. And you didn't just pledge to the flag, the American flag. You pledged to the Christian flag and you pledged to the Bible. So we would walk in a fourth oh, grade oh, kid. Oh, oh. I'm, I, there's a Christian flag? Yeah, they, it's, it's a Christian flag. It's white with a blue square and a red cross. And you, there's a pledge for it. A pledge allegiance to the Christian flag and to the Savior for whose kingdom it stands. One Savior crucified, risen, and coming again to give life and liberty to all who believe. Ah. There's also a, one for the Bible. I'm so we would say three what? pledges. Okay. Now, I'm a fourth grader. I am being asked to pledge my allegiance to the Christian flag, to the Bible. As a fourth grader, do I have any idea what the implications of allegiance are, lifelong allegiance? Of course not. But we are brainwashed as children. I pledge allegiance to the Bible, God's holy word. I will make it a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, and I will hide its words in my heart that I might not sin against God. And we say it over and over and over, and it becomes our normal, and that's very hard to get out of. Actually, you, know, I, I would. you look over the Abrahamic religions uh, from Judaism where there, there's very little reason to proselytize or convince people. And so the mechanisms aren't there. There, there is no carrot and there is no stick. There's just the sense of the promised people, you know, the, the chosen people. And then you have Christianity, which, which began to innovate from that base and create these, these concepts to, to motivate people and to proselytize. And then you get uh, Islam, and Islam had even further innovations, and, and they were also very focused on the, uh, the, the terrestrial world and, and things that could happen to you on Earth. And then now, and I think, I think this is a legitimate extension, are the Mormon faith. And I think the Mormons have taken proselytizing way beyond all their ancestral uh, root religions uh, to the point where they dedicate, every one of them dedicates years of their life to spreading the faith. And that's probably why if they were a major religion, they soon will be, uh, they would be the number one fastest growing religion in the world. Uh, whereas you, you get things like um, you know Buddhism, Hinduism, that, that there's no there's no hook, right? And and as a result, they, they only grow along with the, the the people in that culture. They don't spread. Uh, you don't you don't see Hindu converts uh, running around except maybe in college, uh, young college kids taking philosophy. Concordance. Did you see? Uh, 
Did you see the leaked video of the Mormon endowment ceremony that it, it was on YouTube like, I don't know, six months ago? And it's uh, this long, someone snuck, a, I guess, a cell phone in and recorded the, the actual ceremony. Has anyone seen that or, or, or just me? No. No, but I am all ears. It, it, <laughs> I think you can just YouTube it. Mormon endowment ceremony, secret video, something like that. And if you've ever seen the movie Bo, Bowfinger, it reminds me of Mindhead. Where everybody walked around with little triangle hats and was like, mind head. It was this very cultish, freakish kind of a punchline. They're wearing the white robes and they're getting up and they bow and they get up and they bow. And I look at the whole thing and I go, oh, my God. You know, so the idea that somebody snuck a phone in there is just it's justice. Make sure you check it out. But, you know, the, the, the innovations that religions have employed over, over time have refined and it, it's generally improved. Uh, and of course, they borrow from each other, so you get you know more more of a focus on things that are effective. Uh, and there's a sort of natural selection. There's a sort of evolution of religion. Uh, you would certainly think that the the ones that are most effective at getting more converts will flourish and survive. Uh, and those that that don't go away. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's it's the same. <laughs> you would appreciate this, I think. Um, it's the same rules that define whether viruses are successful. Unless you can actually propagate at least one virus for everyone that dies, uh, extinction is, or uh, your, your colony will die out. Um, and, yeah, so things that retain people, like um, you know, getting down on your knees and praying five times a day, or threatening to kill people who leave your religion... Uh, good for stopping people from leaving, um, and then you're right. You need to to, to put a lot of effort into uh, you know converting new people, and there's a lot of focus on the children. Actually, this is one thing that you said, Seth, that I, I wanted to come back to. You said that saying all these pledges actually um, had an effect. Now, I was actually um, when I grew up, I spent a year. In America, and yeah, I was only like ten at the time or something, and I too was trotted out to the courtyard and you know said the pledge of allegiance. And of course, no one told me that I didn't have to say it or anything. Um, and I think this is back in the days when it was compulsory or something. But I mean, the thing that um, struck me is that there was just the fact that everyone had to do it and it was compulsory just led to such such apathy about it. It diluted it to the point where um, it was something that everyone did, but no one believed in. I mean, is that the sensation that you got with these Christian pledges, or not did, at all? You, uh, you, you actually, we now you have to remember that many of and I don't know what your home life was like, but many of us were raised in the cradle of. I mean, the reason we were at these these small private sort of biospheres where we are at that closed system where a private school is because we are to be protected from the influences of the outside world. That mindset tells you something about many of the parents who send their children there. This was not some rich fat cat school where everybody wears fancy uniforms and drives a Lexus. I mean, it was, this was a small little hub and we wore a uniform. You should have seen them. You had red, white, or blue slacks, red, white, or blue shirt, and on Chapel Wednesdays, you wore an American flag necktie, clip-on necktie for chapel services. We looked like little, you know, I said in the, I said in the book, I said, you look like patriotic paper dolls, for Pete's sake. You, know, and we would go. <laughs> you should have seen this. 
you know, we, I'm not saying we were bright, but you could have landed aircraft by the clothes we were wearing. And to us, we honestly believe this is our duty. And they took it a step further, and this is true of most Christian schools. One of the things they charge us with is that America has been too secularized. We need good Christian men and women to grow up and assume positions of influence professionally, in politics, what have you, to help take our country back. And this is the terminology that is used. And this is what was used on us throughout my entire private school education. We need good, responsible, upstanding, moral Christian men and women to go out into the world when they graduate and make a difference and help rescue this nation and make us again one nation under God. And, uh, and so it's really almost like they are preparing an army for battle. It sounds really melodramatic, but there is some truth to it. They are charging us. So now we have a sense of purpose. We feel like we are on a life mission for God. We feel like we know a secret that many other people in the world do not know. And when we, when we hit that mark, when we become adults and take charge of this world, we're going to go out there and be warriors for God. And that's this, the attitude that's sounds, cultivated. This sounds rather like Jesus Cap. It was pretty. It was. It wasn't as intense as Jesus Camp, but it was. It, there were echoes of it. Yes. And well, it's that's dominionism too, right? The the the, the principle that somehow that, that's something I was kind of trying to touch on earlier with with David Silverman is that at least in my area it's a Catholic majority. Uh, and I, I would probably be willing to bet that if we instituted school prayer, let's say we, we tossed the First Amendment out, that you're going to have a lot of very unhappy Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterians, and Episcopalians, and so on, uh, with their kids being forced to say something Catholic-specific, or, or uh, you know, pray to a picture of the Pope, or to acknowledge the Virgin Mary. You know, there are so many religious differences, even within Christianity, that if we were to institute any kind of mandatory prayer, it's going to make somebody unhappy. It's going to be a fairly high percentage, and especially the ones who think that they are the religion. This, in my area, it would be the Southern Baptists would, would be awfully unhappy about pictures of the Pope uh, sitting have, around, because they consider that idolatry. I have a thought. I know, you, I know you want to get to dark matter, and I, want to, I don't want to trot on his time, but I have, I have an, another thought about this I think is relevant. You know, whenever they would have these big battles about the prayer at, a, say, a high school graduation, the invocation is what they call it. And this comes up quite a bit, uh, not as much recently, but it used to be a big deal. Uh, student protest mandatory invocation at high school graduation. And it turns into this big thing and the local paper carries it and everybody acts indignant and has a big fit about it and before you know it if it's banned they'll have a prayer three minutes before it in the parking lot and say we showed you people and and i heard garrison keeler say something once in a story that that i think is absolutely true have you ever heard anything more droll to go back to dark because lifeless vacuous uh, void life-sucking anything more life-sucking than a high school invocation prayer they're horrible there's no god in it it's just some drone behind the microphone who loves the sound of his own voice no one's even listening it's just unbelievable that it's something that they consider a moral victory and you know um in in you know the times I did go to Sunday school, you know, with my 
with my aunt or, or, or went to church with some other family member, God came up or something. Most of the time I just um, didn't say anything or, you know, when people were praying or whatever, I would just sit there and I didn't do it. Um, and to kind of extend upon what Seth was saying, I, I always find it kind of amazing when, when people can't distinguish between not being allowed to do something and not being allowed to impose something upon others. You know, I think that's an extremely important distinction that too many people, uh, namely the, the, on the religious side, are completely misunderstanding or, or ignoring. That's, that's a really good point. It, it, it's not illegal to pray in schools. Right, you you can you can pray over your meal. You can pray around the flagpole. You can you can do whatever you want to. We just can't force people to, to do that. And you can go to Sunday school and learn Genesis, but we don't teach it in the science classroom. And you can even teach the Bible in a religious studies classroom. That's not a problem. It's that we're not going to favor one particular religious viewpoint. That's the point. It's, it's pluralism. It's not even necessarily secularism. It's not necessarily some sort of a rejection of religious faith. It's that we accommodate everyone uh, in order that everyone is, is equal under the law. Yeah, uh, matter. what's to, your view uh, on this? To, Sorry, Thunder, just you go briefly on? follow um, onto what Concordance was saying. Anne was saying earlier, I mean, this thing about, you know, if you were to say, okay, let's have God in politics, yeah, this would almost instantly precipitate uh, sort of war amongst the religious. And, uh, you know, the difference a few words can make. Um, you know, we want there is only one God on our money. And then you just add that one little line afterwards, and Muhammad is his messenger. Um, yeah. yeah. Anyway, sorry, Dark Matter, I didn't mean to intrude, sorry. Dark Matter, I, oh. I, I was just interested in your views of what um, Seth was saying about how he considers oh. it to be indoctrination to, or, or child, child cruelty, I'd put it, to it's, teach young children about hell. Yeah, it's really insidious, and um, you're almost at a disadvantage to have, in, well, you, you are at a disadvantage to have integrity um, in, in these kind of situations. You, know, you don't see a lot of, you know, you know, atheist schools, you know, like you would a Sunday school where we're trying to impose, you know, our viewpoints on, upon children, knowing that they're young and vulnerable and they, you know, critical thinking isn't uh, a big, you know, they're, they're very trusting in what they're being taught, you know, from an adult and, and you know, and they just take things at face value. I mean, religious people, know, you know, the people, I don't want to just put them all in one group, but, you know, a lot of these people uh, who, who think it's okay to just to, to teach children this stuff. I mean, you've you got to realize some of them are got to be doing it out of, you know, a sense of duty and honor, you know, thinking that they're saving, you know, the children and whatnot. And as misguided as, as, misguided as that is, it's, at least it's coming from somewhere honorable, I guess. But um, a lot of them like that Jesus camp crap you know they know what they're doing they know that it's much easier to convince a child than it is to convince an adult and you know it's it's easier to just start it at the beginning and, and you know 
I know a lot of, you know, I've come to know a lot of atheists, you know, through YouTube and stuff. And, and I don't see that with them. I don't see them looking to push their crap onto their kids, you know. And, you know, I'm not going to tell my kid what to believe and what not to believe. I'm going to tell them what I know to be true and what I know is bullshit. And, you know, I'm, the, the truth is I don't know if there's a God or not, but, um, I mean, I don't think it's, the Christian God or Yahweh or whatever. I mean, I pretty much know it's not that God if there is one. But, you know, and I'm also not going to, you know, disown my kid if he becomes a Christian or anything like that. You can't. That would never happen with me. Not in a million years. Um, so I, I really cannot relate with that kind of mentality. You know, where you, you're just taking advantage of these young minds. Um, if I may... Please, I agree with Daniel Dennett on this issue. I believe that the central tenets of the major religions of the world should be taught as fact. Here's what they believe. Here's who their deity is. Here's what their doctrines say. Here's what their culture does. And you teach the major religions as uh, informationally. Not this is the truth. This is the way. But this is what... Christianity believes uh, Protestant Christianity, Catholicism, Islam, the Eastern religions, I don't know, whatever. And, and apology. Uh, you, you essentially are giving them information. And then if you have taught them critical thinking skills, then you allow them the opportunity to put the puzzle pieces together with some guidance, obviously. I mean, they're going to come to you. And I don't think there's a bias-free environment for a parent. That's just a fantasy. But... To teach them what everyone believes, I honestly, my belief about the religion, the religious cultures in this world now, I, I see it like going to a Mexican restaurant. I had this thought a while back, maybe someone else has already come up with a metaphor. But it's funny because I'm looking on the menu, right? I'm going to get a taco. All right, there's ground beef, there's lettuce, there's cheese, there's salsa. Okay. Oh, no, you know, I might be hungry for an enchilada. What's in that? Well, there's tortilla, ground beef, cheese. Lettuce and salsa. Okay, well, I guess I'll have a, a tortilla. What's in that? Oh, it's ground beef. I mean, it's all the same ingredients arranged different ways. What a great metaphor for religion. They're all using essentially the same ingredients. You've got a deity. You've got a church and community. You've got posthumous existence. You have holy books. They're just sort of arranging them in different ways. If you, I think, show that objectively to a young person who has been taught to think critically, they'll start to see that this may be a house of cards. I think there's an extension to that argument as well, if I may, and that is something that came up, it's come up a number of times, but certainly came up uh, in a conversation I had with um, Jack together for peace. Um, and he was explaining some of his religious background and how at one time he believed in this, but then um, he wasn't sure about this and he thought about becoming a particular denom different denomination and then he wasn't sure about that and then he found one that suited him. And the expression I used was he was effectively window shopping for that which suited him. He was cherry picking the nice bits that made him feel comfortable. And this has got obviously nothing to do with the truth value of any of these religious claims. It's, it's a comfort mm -hmm. blanket that he was looking for. And, and I'm amazed at how many arguments I get from theists who say, well, if there's no God, then, you know, it's okay to do this or that, or it's, if, if, if you, you know, if this isn't true, then, you know, this would suck. 
if A isn't true, then B would suck. You know, it's like, so? What about, re is there anything else about that you know about the real world that sucks? I mean, does the fact that you don't like it mean that it's no longer true? Yes, that's another uh, frustrating question, um, along, much along the lines of the question, um, if there's no God, what's the purpose of the universe? That one really irritates me. I, I, how do people react when they hear that? I know what my reaction is, but what answers do you give? Complete blank silence from four of the <laughs> most say, eloquent do, are you talking people dark ever. Or? No, all of you, whoever wants to chip in there. Well, well I, please go ahead. Please go ahead. Your answer will probably well surpass mine anyway. No, <laughs> Just no, no. Um, well, I'm not. Uh, I don't have much time to think about it. I'd probably give a better answer if I had more time to think about it. But I think a big problem comes when, you know, people anthropomorphize the universe and, and nature, you know, and they ascribe these human traits to it. I mean, why, why do you... Why does it have to have a purpose? And what I, I think a big problem comes into play when people confuse the why questions with the how questions. You know, human minds do things. You know, for, you know why? Why do you why do you eat? You know, because you know you feel hungry, and, and you have a, why. A, you know, is is all about motivation. But but how? You know, how does how did that rock come to be there? Well, there, there was no why involved there. There was no intention, no desire. It just is. It just happened, and, and we can describe how it happened, but not why it happened. And I think a big problem is when people conflate those two things. Yeah, I mean, that was my, that, that's my um, answer. Is uh, The question assumes there has to be a purpose, which well, also well, doesn't. Get, get to the deeper, the, the, the deeper analysis of what they're saying. So... If I say that, that the only meaning in life is the meaning that you want to assign or, or the only purpose in life is a purpose that you choose, they're saying from a religious perspective that you should be told what your purpose is in life. And, and that purpose, according to most religions, is to spend your entire time glorifying someone else or, or uh, living up to their example. Well, that, that is not that noble. Right, doing what you're told is one of the least noble things I can think of. Doing something for a promise of reward is one of the least uh, least honorable things I can think to do. Deciding for yourself that you want to sacrifice some of your own personal happiness uh, in order to make the world a better place, to leave the world a better place. And not because you're being rewarded, not because you're commanded to, but because you simply make that choice, to me is is much more noble, much more admirable. Um, and so I don't think that there is any advantage to being commanded or to believe that you're commanded uh, to lead life a certain way. I'm going to take a question from the chat and then I'm going to take our next caller because I'm aware that we hopefully will be being joined by Professor Phil Moriarty in about 20-25 minutes or so. Um, and this kind of follows on from what we're saying and I'm going to go to Dark first then Seth for this answer. Um, it comes from ABC Craig uh, who asks, can you ask the panel about their opinion on the historical reliability of the gospel uh, for the historical Jesus. 
Duck. Give that one to Seth. I want to hear um, Seth's take. Well, okay. Here's what I would say briefly, and I thought about doing a video on this. Um, let's let's attribute. Let's let's compare the rest of history to Jesus's history. You know how how feasible would it be to have a, a George Washington floating up into the clouds, you know, or or killing his uh, other armies with with a donkey's jawbone? Uh, okay, I realize that's not part of Jesus's history, um, but you know, look at all the things Jesus has done, and we call that you know history. Um, you know, where where do you see that in in uh, elsewhere in history that we don't label as you know? mythology you know one of the things that has always bothered me is who wrote down the stuff about like jesus's temptation when he was all by himself except for satan who wrote that down in the bible who heard what was spoken because almost immediately afterwards he's killed so he probably wouldn't have had a chance to really oh by the way guys i was out in the desert with the on the desert with satan and he promised who who was there who knew what he said uh how was it related what kind of verification even within the story itself we have all these obviously uh fictitious elements it couldn't logically have been recorded by a a, a chronicle of any kind well, and on top of that, the scripture has conflicting accounts of the temptation right. of Jesus, where they, in one account, they start on the mountain, and in another account, the mountain comes later on. So the Bible itself can't even decide the order of basic events. And this is something that when you are in the church, they, you are either told what's in the Bible without actually reading it. The Bible is something you keep on the nightstand and you carry to Sunday church, so you can look at the reference given from the podium, but it's not something that you, you really read. Uh, and if you do read it, you certainly don't read it side by side. You don't read the, like the nativity story we talked recently in a video I did called To Xmas and Beyond about the contradictions and even the story of Mary and Joseph and the birth of Jesus. I mean, there's just so many. If you were to read the story side by side, you would say, geez, you know, this doesn't even make sense. You know, I think concordance and, and dark matter are both dead on. I mean, you, even if there was a guy named Jesus, and I don't know that it's knowable at this measure, the larger question is this. Did the God-man Jesus exist? A guy who essentially impregnated a virgin with himself, who gave birth to himself, lived for 33 years so he could get his ass kicked by the very people he's trying to save to rescue them from the very hell he created. The person who levitated and, and you know, threw demons into pigs and did all these amazing things, you know. And, and for my part, you know, I'm very dubious about a, a lot of it. You know, we, we were talking recently about, you know, it, even the city of Nazareth, you know, it, it's not really mentioned by any contemporary historian. Uh, you know, in the Talmud, I think they have like 60-some Galilean towns listed that not once is Nazareth mentioned. Um, it's in none of the writings of Josephus. It's, it's one of those things where, I mean, it, it, it seems to me he would have had a better historian <laughs> to document the idea that if he truly cared about my eternal salvation, he would do a, something other than play the rumor game, the telephone game with his critical story of salvation. And uh, so I myself, knowing that it, it doesn't even agree with itself in Scripture, I, I kind of think, it, for me, it doesn't really matter.
Uh, just before I come to you, Thunder, I recommend um, to ABC Craig or anyone else who is interested in this area to uh, read or even watch uh, videos on YouTube by Bart Ehrman, um, who does a very good job in displaying the inaccuracies in the Bible. I think Bart actually believes that there was an actual guy named Jesus. I'm reading two of his books now, so I haven't gotten that deep into them. But I think Bart Ehrman has come to the conclusion that there probably was a, a guy named Jesus, and then the myth built off of this human person. So I suspect, there were, I, I, I suspect there were many people called Jesus, but there we go, Thunderfoot. Yeah, I mean, one of the first things that strikes you when you pick up the Bible is just how little of Jesus there is in there. Bibles give or take about 2,000 pages, of which about 200 are Gospels, but that's four accounts of essentially the same story, which is another thing that's rather bizarre. So it, it's basically, out of a 2,000-page book, about 50 pages is what documents the life of Jesus. Um, that's, uh, okay, even if it's 1,500 pages, I mean, it really doesn't make any difference. You're talking about 5% is the bit with Jesus. And why the quadruple redundancy? What's wrong with just one account of Jesus' life? Anyway, that's the sort of uh, petty stuff. Because, I mean, there are some really nice things in the Bible that Jesus had to say. I, I like the, the Bibles where they highlight, you know, Jesus, what Jesus said and, and read. You can flip through that and cherry pick. It's not all great. I mean, it's, it's the kind of thing you would expect from uh, that contemporaneous type of situation. It's probably been added to it. Whatever. It's a shame that we can't take the good stuff and throw the bad stuff away. Of course, we can, but a religious person can't because they have to take all that baggage along with them. Uh, where they, you know they have to believe the whole thing, they can't cherry pick. That's that's you know an anathema to them. But you can do that from so many other good books, from from the writings of so many historical figures who are so obviously products of their time, a, a bit backwards to us today. But we can cherry pick the the neat stuff that they said. You know, Sun Tzu, the art of war. We can we can take from that a lot of useful information. Uh, and I think the Bible could be useful in that same fashion. But you can't do that as a religious believer. Yeah, um, I've got a couple more things to to add to this. Um, you know, certainly some things in the Bible are just um, crazy, like the bit when Jesus dies and all the dead people come out of the graves and walk around Jerusalem. You know, that's. That's the sort of thing that contemporary historians would have noticed. You know, it's something that's kind of out of the ordinary. Anyway, not a hint of that. But to an extent, even if it's all real, I mean, um, our technological ability um, outstrips Jesus' miracle abilities in the Bible by orders of magnitude, to the point where if this is really the best, that the, this, the best miracles this God has to offer, then the whole thing's a complete farce. In the you know uh, Jesus feeds fifty thousand through a miracle. Well, no, five thousand. He feeds five thousand through a miracle. Well, the Haber process, which is a single chemical process, produces the chemical fertilizer that feeds about a third of the people on this planet. It feeds two billion people versus this five thousand in the Bible. I mean, our technological ability um, makes the the miracles of the Bible. Uh, uh, a, a complete joke. The, the feeding of the 5,000 is another story that has a completely contradictory account because where Jesus travels to right after the feeding of the 5,000 is different in one book than it is in another. 
pretty basic information. What I enjoy is getting the supposed experts in a room. I'm sure all of you are no strangers to having emails from people who are desperate to be right and to convince you, apologist types. I had one this week, which echoes many behind him, who said, you're making a mistake. You're not reading the Bible in the original King James. And, of course, my <laughs> hand goes here, just right Right here. I mean, what do you do with that? Oh, it's the NIV. No, it's the Message Bible. No, it's the Red Letter Bible. No, it's the, it's the New International Bible. I mean, how many thousands of subjective translations of this story do we have floating around? It's comical. Just before we come to you, Victor, and I, I appreciate your patience, um, I just want to deal very quickly with an issue that's, again, sort of like being touched upon. Um, I was having a conversation over Christmas with my mother, who is an atheist. She's uh, a member of the British Humanist Association. Um, and she was telling me that when she made her application or whatever to join the organization, uh, one of the things that the, she suggested uh, to them was that the Humanist Society Association, um, basically their, their morals and their beliefs were based on Christian uh, values. Uh, at which point you can imagine I was a little bit confused so um, I asked her to explain what the Christian values were uh, and I got a strange uh, response um, which basically involved her cherry picking as most people do the nice bits out of it and I suggested to her that perhaps there were other bits that she had not read um, and particularly given the fact that her eldest son my older brother uh, is a homosexual. Um, she didn't seem to be particularly conversant with what God had to say about homosexuality. She was not aware, I mean she was basically, I think, um, putting it down to uh, the Sermon on the Mount, but even that contains some very odd stuff. And a couple of um, chapters later, uh, in the same book, um, Jesus is saying, I've not come to bring peace, I've come to bring a sword to uh, separate relationships of mothers and daughters, fathers, sons, and so on. And she was totally unaware of this. So um, to all of you, whoever wants to take it first, uh, does the concept of Christian values in your mind have any meaning? And if so, what meaning do you think it has? Actually, DPR, before we take that, can I just uh, finish up on my thoughts about um, miracles of Jesus versus the technological, technological achievements of man. Like, for instance, you know, Jesus' miracle, he walks on water. Man walks on the moon. And even as a, a character, if, if you take it as a character of fiction, it's still junk in that Dr. Manhattan has this beaten hands down. Dr. Manhattan not only walked on Mars, but on the surface of the sun. And what has Jesus got? He walks on water. And that, you know what that reminds me of? Uh, one of my favorite Star Trek episodes, The Next Generation, called uh, Devil's Do, where an, where an alien uh, finds a, a civilization on, Earth, on, uh, on some planet where um, they had this prophecy about the devil coming back and taking over. And she used her technology, transportation and, uh, you know, teleportation technology and whatnot, and... and uh, to pretend to be the devil, and and she was 100% convincing because she could do all these this magic, quote unquote, you know. And so Picard came along and exposed her as a fraud. I mean, we would be totally vulnerable to shit like that. <laughs> yeah, especially some sort of. Uh, I mean, I I did this video a long time ago about how God in the Old Testament is basically like a volcano. 
And yeah, if you can get God and a volcano mixed up, damn straight you could be fooled by almost any sleight of hand. So I want to answer your question, DPR. What are, what are Chris? Oh, and thank you. I'm, I'm glad somebody does. <laughs> <laughs> Translated, I'm going to pay attention to what you actually said, DPR. I'm the good uh, That's good. Yeah, Pat him on the head and affirm him occasionally because he really needs that. He needs that. The, the answer is no, right, Concordance? Shut up, Thunder, I'm going to kick you. Right. Concordance. You know, I, I don't know a lot of... I'm not like most of you guys that have the deep Bible knowledge that all atheists seem to have, but I do know that prior to Paul, uh, Saul of Tarsus, whatever, uh, the early Christian church was very Jewish. It was, a, it was a Jewish sect at that point. And it was Paul who sort of t took it out to the Gentiles. And along the way, it picked up a lot of Roman values, and it up a lot of um, Asia Minor uh, values, you know. So it's acculturated as it's gone along, like like a sticky goo ball. Uh, that everywhere it goes, it picks up some new thing. And so, it, you know, Christian values mean something very different to uh, someone following an early legacy of the church. You know, it was it was a religion of the slave and the outcast. Uh, in the very earliest part of the church, it was it was the very Jewish element. It was a very Jewish form of Christianity, and so to say that there is a Christian value set is really not true. It's it's dynamic, it's interactive, but it's still tethered down to the writings in that book. And for for a number of years, as it was spreading, it picked up newer things. You know, Saint Patrick added a lot to uh, what what Christian. Christianity was in Northern Europe, but now it's become so hidebound by the things that it was born from that it can't adapt fast enough. Right? You still have this this wide range of people following these different, very fundamentalist and very progressive ideas. Obviously, there's not a single set because it keeps changing over time, and it adapts to whatever new culture it's introduced to. And that's all I had to say about that. Okay, well, being aware of the time and the fact that no one else seemed to want to answer the question, we'll take Victor, who's been waiting patiently. Victor, what have you got for us? Hello, yes, a uh, big fan of all, all your stuff. Uh, what I wanted to discuss was the difference between atheism and theism from country to country. You see, I live in Sweden, and we're very different from the U.S. in, in terms of faith. You see, during my entire school, you know, from first grade and up, I encountered one other student who was actually, you know, a faithful believer, so to say. And, yeah, he got questioned a, questioned a fair bit. My, I mean, my mother sang in, sang in church, but I don't think she's a believer in any way. The church is more sort of just, sort of just there because it's always been there and doesn't really do much. I'm not sure how many, but I think there's a fair amount of people who work in church and such who are not actually believers. They're, it's just a job. And, you know, on the one hand, that's sad because we, we haven't gotten rid of this piece of baggage. I am amazed and a tad envious at the idea of living in sort of a photo negative of the religious culture, where if someone says, I believe in Jesus, they probably don't say it that way in Sweden. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, if they say that, they're the ones who are looked at with the raised eyebrow. I find that to be something I indeed. I would be like, oh yeah, you have to be my surrounded by. My family is atheist, 
every, well, my entire family is atheist. There's admittedly there's a fair amount of agnostics, so to say, the people who people who say they you know don't believe in anything. They don't believe in God, but they believe in something. They just don't know what it is yet. But mm -hmm. those, those kind of people might exist, but there is you know there's not this general consensus of one religion or the other. And then, I, mean, I dealt you with this. Have a Christian cult, one that it's called the Word of Life, and they believe in demons and shit. But they're like in this little backwards piece of the countryside, and the rest of, the, of us essentially go, "Yeah, you can stay over there while the rest of us just get on with our lives." For most, what about of us, all the lampas in the world, though? All the lampas in Sweden, right? Rolf and Samuel and the other hundred, just like him, right? For, you know those guys? Of us. The who? Uh, a, couple of, a couple of shows ago, we had on Rolf uh, Lamper and Samuel Lamper. Rolf Lamper is the head of the Creationist Association in Sweden. Uh, I think it's a very small movement, but unfortunately, it does appear that um, you do have a few creationists there. Uh, and I have to say, Rolf and Samuel are no better, no better than the creationists in 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 America. But do carry on. There's actually creationists in Sweden. Oh yes. On the one hand, I'm happy I hadn't heard of them, but wow. This That's is how I think most people approach their belief, if I may. Look, there are some people who are like the William Lane Craigs and the Ken Hams and the James Dobsons and the Rick Warrens and whatnot. And there are those people reflected in, in everyday culture as well, right? They'll go out and they are their letter of the law, true believers. Hell, my parents are that way. But the vast majority of people have no idea what their Bible says. The Bible, it to, to them, is a decorative item. It is a symbol. Their faith gives them comfort. It, does give, it alleviates the fear of death and hell. And so to them, it's really more of a cultural thing. Oh, yeah, I believe in God. If you were to ask them what the, even five of the Ten Commandments are, you would see that blank mannequin stare uh, as they try to retrieve the water from the well and quote to you the ten apparently most important commandments ever given to humankind. Most people are dormant in their faith. They speak the language of God, they toss his name out at parties, they pray before meals, thank you Jesus for this meal and for our many blessings, we pray that you'll be with us in Jesus' name, amen. But do they really believe? Well, they're in a car accident today, do they drop to their knees and call down healing from their omnipotent deity or do they grab the cell phone and call 911? If they're taking a college exam, do they pray for the A, dear God, give me the knowledge, or do they study the hell out of that thing to gain the grade? What people invoke God verbally, but most people I know they live. They really, if they had to admit it to themselves, they live as if there is no God. I mean, that's an absolute head shot, Seth. I mean, I really does nail it. I mean, I, I would just add a little bit that um, if people really did think that praying worked, shouldn't there be signs um, in exam halls saying that anyone who believes that prayer works? Um, will be disqualified if seen praying because that's cheating. Yeah, you know, they, they, they should be disqualified. Yeah, if I, I, I if you pray for the uh, to do well on the exam. A picture cheating. of Yahweh in praying hands with a big X on it in the middle of the hallway. <laughs> and another point, if I may, that I'd like to put across is that well, while the political systems are very, system is very different here from the U.S., what I'm the most happy about is that there is one Christian par party and they're between four and six percent and going down and you know the, cons the conservatives and so on they're not necessarily 
you know, the Christian party. They are the conservatives, and then there's the Christian party, and you know, it's it's separated. That is wow. Yeah, I mean, this, Victor, this I, I'm going to allow like one second, Thunder. I'm going to allow um, you to respond to that, Thunder. But Victor, uh, I'm going to remove you. But thank you very much indeed. I'm sorry we only had you on for such a short time, but we've uh, got uh, Professor Phil Moriarty who's just joined us, and uh, also we have Seth who has to leave us as well. Uh, Victor, firstly, you, thank you very much in the, for the call, but um, as I say, thank I'm going to have to remove you. Uh, do feel free to uh, go very quickly, if you could. Thunder, huge fan, keep up the good work, and please send us, send us more, you know, why do people laugh at creationists? Thank you, enough for me. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, I also know that uh, Seth uh, has got to leave us. Uh, Seth, can I ask for well, I can ask the audience, please, for a huge thumbs up for uh, Seth and the time he's given us during the show. And hopefully we'll have you back sometime next year. But thank you and very much. And if I may, I just want to thank all of you. I'm, I am a fan. I mean, I'm not kissing your ass. I'm, you know, I am a fan. Dark Matter and I have he's participated in a video of mine and, and we've had some correspondence, but I haven't really had a, a great chance to thank him for the the work that he does and you know he's he like thunderfoot and and dpr and concord we're sort of survivors we've sort of been around a while and sort of uh just to be able to finally get a chance to say you know thank you for the work that you do for the time and effort you put into to videos that i know cannot be done overnight i know that's a significant time and and resource investment for you they are making a difference i know the people on my page love you guys's work and so thank you for what you do and and i'm a fan and i'll be out there watching Thank you very much thank, indeed, Seth. Yes, thank, thank you, Seth. Um, and and can, I, can I echo that as well, Dark Matter? I have to say, you know, when I look at my subscription box on uh, YouTube and I see that you've done a, a new video, I know that I've got um, several moments of great entertainment to look forward to. And if anyone is not subscribed to Dark Matter 2525, uh, I will include a link. But you, you really ought to be. You are missing out on some of the greatest videos you'll see on YouTube. That said, I do have to move on, though, to our next special guest. Phil, welcome to the show. It's great Thank to have you. you back. Good to be back, yeah. Thank you. Sorry that I can only be here for 10 minutes or so. Um, That's okay. We'll be quick then. Let's cut to the chase. Um, <laughs> we have been looking back over the year, uh, 2012, and looking forward uh, a little bit to 2013. Um, we've been doing it more on um, a sort of like atheist religion sort of like level, but I really want to sort of like discuss science uh, now. Um, what for you were the scientific highlights of 2012 and what, if anything, do you see oh. happening in 2013? So I guess everybody would expect me to say, and of course I'm going to say the, the discovery or the potential discovery of the Higgs, of course, but... Um, Actually, I'm a condensed matter physicist. I'm not a particle physicist. And I actually work very much at the boundary between uh, physics and chemistry. And for me, there were two key stunning experiments um, this year, uh, which, at least in my area of research and on my sort of day-to-day -day, uh, level, 
uh, of you know working in the lab really really inspired me. One of this was recently published in Science by the IBM's Zurich Group who work in atomic force microscopy. Not only now can they see the internal structure of molecules, they can actually image the, the charge density, the electron density due to bonds, effectively see the bonds. They can also see something called the bond order. So they can see variations in charge density. They can tell which particular molecule is more conjugated than another, et cetera. It's just fascinating stuff. Before that, um, in March, in just a, I would argue it's the sort of tour de force of atomic manipulation, which is the area I work in, moving, positioning, single atoms single molecules, measuring their properties, bringing them together, looking at the interactions. Uh, um, Mano Haran's group at Stanford basically did this phenomenal experiment where they built up graphene by moving, uh, or a gra the framework of graphene basically by moving individual uh, molecules around. And they also distorted that lattice to mimic the effects of magnetic fields. It's just uh, staggeringly good work. So that's brilliant. It's great about the Higgs, but the Higgs is not the be-all and end-all. The problem is, like, I get, oh, I don't know, I'd say at least once a week, maybe twice a week, I get emails saying, well, oh, you know, it's probable that they've discovered the Higgs. Does this mean the end of science? No, it, it, it really doesn't. So it's... Um, it's great that they've done it, but from some aspects it can be a little bit frustrating when, you know, everything is, well, we found the God particle now, time to shut everything down. It's, it's a little bit <laughs> irritating. I, I, I can't believe that people actually say that. Um, I mean, what do they think? That this is the, well, the, 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 the um, holy grail of, of science and that's it. Once we've found yeah, that, everyone can put their, all the scientists can put their feet up and say, ah, we've done it all now. But to be fair, you know, there are many physicists who have helped to, you know, foster that particular, um, oh, I don't know, concept in terms of we talk about a very grand unified theory, we talk about the God particle, etc., etc., and we just need this final piece of the puddle and ev puddle? puzzle, and everything will, will, will fall into place. And um, of course it's not like that. In fact, much of the more interesting stuff we haven't got. I hope we haven't got any particle physicists um, watching, um, particularly colleagues in Nottingham. But um, there's there's a vast world of science out there that does not relate really to the, the the Higgs, and it's it's almost heretical for a physicist to say that. But for me, I care about the electromagnetic force. I, I mean, in that in that sense, you're right. These these exceptionally high energy, uh, short time scale experiments are just completely out of the realm of day-to-day -day energies. You know, these are things that essentially never happen. They're of relevance for the standard model. They're of relevance uh, for uh, early working out what would likely have happened in the early universe. But you're right that in terms of things that will actually work into technology and make our lives better, the discovery of the Higgs is almost no relevance. Yeah, yeah. let's perhaps... So I'm, as um, DPR knows, I'm a, a very much a proponent of, of fundamental science and as concordance knows, um, uh, that, you know, there's a, there's a reason we do these things in, that doesn't necessarily have to couple into a technological development. So it's dangerous to go down that path. Um, but, yeah, the, 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 the difficulty, I think, is that we oversell. And in my area, it's happened as well. Nanotechnology was sold and continues to be sold as this wonderful panacea that's going to cure everything, it's going to be this technological bullet that's going to solve all our problems. And that's a, societally, that's a very bad way for 
scientists to behave. Um, you know, if we get this one thing, if we get this next piece of funding, we can solve this and everything will be cured. And to an extent, you know, CERN, Higgs has been, you know, the funding for CERN has been has been driven by the Higgs. That is not to say, and I really don't want to, 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 to put across the idea that I think that the Higgs is not important. Of course it's important. Of course the idea of what's the, you know, what's mass fundamentally um, uh, is... Is, is extremely important, but um, as I said, it's not all of science. I mean, yeah, don't, don't get me wrong. Um, when I when I, with what I was saying, I understand how it could have been misinterpreted. I mean, uh, for certain, the discovery of the Higgs is an absolute tour de force of uh, technology and understanding of of physics. Um, you know, to accelerate whatever it is. Um, it's it's protons, yeah, mm -hmm. to to the point where their effective mass is something like five hundred. About right. About that order, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, the, uh, you know the sort of precisions that you got to work with here um, are oh, impressive. Yeah. Um, Absolutely, and the detector technology, etc., is just out of this out of this world. And um, of course, we've got it. We've got to keep striving. But, you know, is this reductionist approach really the best way to go? You know, I, I've, you look at biology and it's, it's always a question of the, you know, the, something being greater than the sum of the parts. And we've been driven in physics by, and I, I guess we still continue to be to a very large extent, you know, reducing it down to the basic components of the basic components. But in many cases, it's when you when you look at the non-linearities, when you look at the complexity, you know, chaos theory is a very good example. You, 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 from very simple systems, such as, for example, a simple pendulum, if you drive that in the right way, you get this incredibly complex behavior. And I think for many people, that sort of development of um, interactions, the development of um, different types of couplings between different aspects of a system, is and Oh, how can I best describe this in non-scientific la language? Just a question of sort of communities and um, interactions between different objects is perhaps a little bit more um, exciting than actually breaking. We take and we pull, take an onion and we pull off one shell and we break it down, we break it down, we break it down, we break it down, etc. And I think a lot of people are coming around to the idea that um, maybe this reductionist approach is not just the only way. I know biology is going through right now the, the, the beginnings of <clears throat> that reverse trend. So synthetic biology, this, this creation of organisms sort of de novo from uh, DNA. We create an organism, you know, laugh evilly and, and the lightning bolt strikes and everything. But you can, you can put that cell together and learn how the programming works. We've spent all this time tearing apart genes and DNA and epigenetics and all the forces that go to shape how the cell performs. And now the task is to begin to synthesize it back together again and find what we didn't discover by tearing it apart. Um, we're also seeing things like systems biology, which, which draws from multiple disciplines within biology, within molecular biology, uh, to try to understand problems from eight different angles at the same time. Uh, and the kind of people that you see going into systems biology are very different than the standard molecular biologists. They have an entirely different approach. Um, a lot of them have what, what I would consider to be like a five-year research plan. They, they plan on 
where they're going to get, you know, year two, year three, year four, because mm-hmm. all of the, the analytical work's already been done. They've already, again, the reductionists have already been out there and torn it apart and, and discovered what parts go into these different things. And then it's up to a different type of scientist, even, a different, uh, entirely a different approach. And that's why the last time we talked, uh, Phil, is we, we talked about this big science versus small science. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to be a small science project and do reductionist analysis because you can tear it down to the single subunit. But when mm-hmm. it comes time to synthesize across eight different disciplines, you need a program project grant. You need a, you need a, a five-year funding cycle. You need uh, multiple PIs. You need lots of different collaborative efforts so in order to bring that critical mass in. Yeah, I don't want to revisit that, but I guess I think there is. I think you brought up the last time that there is evidence to show that, at least in the, the biological or biomedical sciences, that those large grants win out or those large program grants win out over the small investigator. I don't yeah. believe that exists for physics, not in the, certainly not in the UK and, and not in the US. And, and physics is a very different beast. Um, um, we've obviously, interdisciplinarity is key, but one thing that's, that's forgotten about a lot um, is the, the overlap between experiment and theory. It's still very common for theorists and experimentalists sort of to work as separate units and sort of meet up once a week or whatever or twice a week. But it's, it's, it's still very, very rare to find a postdoc or to find a PhD student who's working on both experiment and theory, certainly in my area, so which is condensed matter physics, surface science, nanoscience. It, it tends to be you have the theorists separated from the experimentalists. And I think getting those people to communicate, even within a single discipline, is just as important as having the sort of large multidisciplinary um, uh, teams working on this. And the other, the other thing that, that worries me about the large multidisciplinary teams is that when you bring these large centers together, and I'm not going to mention names, but there's certainly been the case in the UK, in many cases, you bring these large centers, very well-known places um, together. You have multidisciplinary teams, very large numbers of, of people, and a certain level of complacency builds in, particularly if you know that center is supported for five or ten years or whatever, um, and that that can be un, unhealthy. Yeah, the, the, there is a happy balance there between too much security and too too little security. Indeed. Um, yeah, you, you're right. You, you give people too much security and uh, they become complacent. But if you don't give them enough security, then they will never start on the important big projects. Yeah, and my, my big, biggest bugbear at the moment, we're coming up to this research um, assessment exercise, research excellence framework here in the UK. And my biggest bugbear is that what we are ranked on as academics at the university level, at the faculty level, and also at the national level is how much grant income you bring in not your efficiency in terms of how many papers have you produced per um, dollar or per pound invested. It's have you brought in X numbers of dollars per year? And that's the key metric. And that's a really stupid way to judge people where you're judged on your inputs in terms of securing funding rather than on you know, either your outputs. That, of course, is uh, an aspect of the assessment process. Yeah. But the key metric should be how much output have you delivered for a certain amount of input. And remarkably, that's not the case. 
They can always game that, though. You can always game a ratio like that. It's much harder. You know what I mean by exploit? Yeah. You can exploit mm-hmm. the, the weaknesses in the system. Well, I mean, like this, is the, this is the Online. thing. Once you, what, yeah, what you, concordance is right. Once you come out with any metric, you can always game it to your advantage. Yeah, but um, the metric at the moment is, um, you know, in certain places like Queen Mary, in London, for example, a very, very high, well, reasonably high-profile case, certainly here in the UK, where they were hiring and firing, sorry, firing people on the basis of what was your grant income, what journals had you published in, in terms of the impact factor, where effectively was your name on the author list, and a stupid algorithmic um, summation of all those different items. And, um, you know, we, we are increasingly forced to use these stupid metrics, but, you know, some metrics are even more more stupid than others. What what do you see um, in 2013, or, or maybe just generally in the future, as being the next significant breakthrough um, in uh, science? I mean, you mentioned, for example, that nanotechnology was considered to be the, the next, or previously had been considered to be the next great breakthrough that was going to resolve all sorts of problems, um, but perhaps it isn't. What, where, where do you see the future lying, so to speak? I think so. I think nanotechnology's star is sort of in the descendancy. I think Concordance would probably agree with me that the next big thing or the next buzzword is synthetic biology, artificial life. Would you would you agree that that's something that's going to grow Absolutely. in stature? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I, well, think, could you, I think could you just for the sake of ignorant people like myself and perhaps a couple of the audience as well who may be as thick as I am, um, what that exactly means? It is, as it says on the tin, um, can we have basically abiotic life? Can we have sort of non-carbon based life? Or can we have, um, you know, can we sort of reprogram cells? Can we muck around with the, the, the genetic um, machinery? Are we necessarily restricted to carbon and what, what, what exists beyond that? And um, certainly for me, those are, those are fascinating areas. For me, one thing that I'm really keen on in my particular area uh, by the way concordance i'm sure can expand on, on those rather um naive physicists ideas there um one thing i'm really keen on is is to move aw- is to move towards something whereby instead of what we do now when we make a material or we make a an assembly of molecules is that we sort of trial and error process these things throw some molecules down see that they form some nice pretty patterns investigate those and then try and and see what the properties are wouldn't it be great if you could dial in a property and then set the system up so that it evolves okay you might have to prod it with different electric fields or different um, flows of chemicals or whatever but say that what i want is a material with this property and then you use some type of evolutionary strategy genetic algorithm whatever you want to call it to 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 get the system to move in that direction and you know there are a couple of labs in the US that are moving along these lines, one or two labs in Japan that are also doing this, but it's not that widespread at the moment, and I think that's a fascinating area. But again, this is Concordance's um, stomping ground, rather. Well, than you're, the pressure's on you, Concordance. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is. It's one of the biggest things, and it goes in two directions. The physicist, of course, is interested in the, the, the basics, the um, uh, how do these molecules interact, yada, yada. And that's the work that's currently going on is, is can we understand enough of how nature creates these programs in order to replicate something 
custom built for that purpose. Mm. What what most people don't think about with synthetic biology is there's actually, and this goes back to our initial conversation, has an enormous commercial potential. Uh, you know, everyone's a little skeptical about that right now, but ultimately you could build bacteria to do something for you. You can you can design bacteria to make ethanol out of uh, uh, plant wastes. You, I you, was you afraid can... you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> there are all sorts of things that we're currently constrained by what we can do with existing organisms and, and cramming a gene into them. Uh, but we can now say, what if we built it from the ground up? What if we took just the most basic operation uh, within a bacterial cell and we started adding additional things? What if we could program in clonal mammalian cells to make a liver, uh, to make uh, a modified liver, to replace um, parts of the, the brain in, in Parkinson's? Uh, so there, there are a lot of potential applications once we understand that we can reboot a cell that we can we can scoop out the DNA that's in there and put new DNA in and have it follow a completely different path um, there's a lot of applications for that and the fact that there are immediate applications makes it much more commercially viable which means more support from sectors outside of, of the National Institutes of Health yeah. uh, so I think we'll see a very very rapid progress in that field the other field and I'm just going to throw this in is next-gen sequencing it's, it's freaking amazing what we can do now with next-gen sequencing um, sequencing DNA you all know the original human genome project took a really long time and cost uh, billions of dollars uh, and that same operation can now be done in really a day uh, for, for about three to five thousand dollars a whole genome uh, depth of four or five times, each, each base being read four or five times. Uh, probably within two years, we'll have the $100 genome. Wow. Uh, and you'll be able to do it in, in, a, in an hour or two. And now you're in Gattaca territory. But there are a number of applications for that as well, far beyond what most people think of, you know, prenatal screening and forensics. There are a number of applications where people can say when they show up at the hospital, uh, be treated a certain way based on you know, this is the whole personalized medicine uh, option. The number of other things, next-gen sequencing as a technology, though, is advancing faster than anything I have ever seen in my lifetime. It's truly so, astounding. I, I, I would just add one. Uh, I'm all with you on the uh, medical applications. The one that I, I raise an eyebrow at is using microbes to break down cellulose, uh, yeah. essentially to turn trees into ethanol. And that's, uh, the, the, the cynic in me says that bacteria and the such like have had four and a half billion years to work out an effective way to metabolize cellulose and they've come up dry. So I think you, we've already have a regional idea that there isn't, um, uh, that, that a large part of the landscape has been explored and it's not got anything. It didn't. It didn't get anywhere. Um, so I mean, I mean, I'm I'm skeptical on on that side. And also, it's one of those things that even if you could work out um, convince bacteria that would digest cellulose very quickly, this is probably the last thing that you would ever want to create, given that this is a, a planet destroyer. You know, you you get this out into the wide world and um, 
Yeah, those those are genes you don't really don't want to create if they exist at all. If I can just, Richard, just one thing, stepping back to physics for one second. One thing I should have mentioned that what I was really, really happy to see was that the award of the Nobel Prize, although many in last year in physics, although many people thought it might very quickly go to the Higgs, um, actually went to fundamental discoveries in in quantum mechanics. And that's just, again, I'm just touching back on something we discussed the last time I was on the show. There well, are I gave, so I gave you the opportunity then, Phil, to explain to the audience um, all about quantum electrodynamics, and you seemed reluctant to take up that In five minutes. <laughs> well, I gave you five minutes, yeah. <laughs> uh, what, what are, I, I, I think the fundamental... Sorry, is, go on, Richard. Is, is it possible for you to tell us what the um, new discoveries were? So, yeah, no, the, the new discoveries are fundamentally about trapping single particles, um, photons basically and electrons, and looking at the interactions between those. And um, they, they fundamentally looked at something called entanglement, which I, get, I did mention the last time around, and that remains the unsolved and the big issue um, in, in quantum mechanics um, is, you know, if you get two, two particles, um, you can set them up in a state whereby, without going into the details, um, you can send one particle to one end of the universe, the other particle to the other end of the universe. They mean they, they um, retain a coupling, which is called entanglement. And if you make a measurement on this particle over here, this one responds instantaneously. It's what we call superluminally, faster than the speed of light. And there have been a number of experiments along the lines of those which the Nobel Prize was won for this year. Um, stretching back to the 80s, and um, that have you know shown that this remarkable spooky action at a distance, as Einstein called it, holds. And we just don't have a clue. There was something fundamentally lacking in our understanding of space-time and our understanding of how um, what the, the essence of of, of the, the the wave-like nature of a, of a particle is. And that that's been something that's been hanging around for the last century and I don't think it's going to be solved in 2013 but I hope that the award of the Nobel Prize last, last year give a bit more impetus to those types of, of studies and certainly get a bit more funding flowing towards fundamental um, or experiments designed to, to, to really probe the fundamental aspects of quantum mechanics without having one eye on the sort of technological discoveries. I, I, have, I have an offer, offer for you then Phil. Um, I appreciate the time you said you'd give us 15 minutes, you've given us 25. What I'll do oh, okay. is invite you to come back and join us uh, on a show next year when we can actually have more time to spend on that. I'd love uh, to, yeah. Yeah, um, we look forward to that. Um, but uh, as I said, I, I know that um, your time is restricted. Can I just thank you very much for joining us on our Magic Sandwich Show Christmas special? Thank uh, you. As I say, I will be in touch with you and... Um, uh, get you booked in for sometime next year. It's excellent. Happy New Year to you all. Great pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Happy Phil. New Year. And a thumbs up, please, from the uh, audience for uh, Phil's time. Uh, don't matter. How long does it take you to make your videos? Because I mean, they're, they're incredibly intricate. Oh, thank you. Um, it depends really on how much of how much material I've already made that I don't like if, if I have a lot of new characters or new scenes that I have to draw then it'll take a while it'll take as long as you know two weeks 
But if I'm if I'm doing a, a video where I had already drawn everything, you know, I got God and Jeffrey say they're going to be the main characters, and you know, it's just going to be mostly a background of like heaven or something. Then I can bang one out in a couple of days. And you do all the voices yourself. You do Jeffrey and God. Yeah, yeah. I just change the pitch and the speed a little bit. I think I think Mrs. Dark helps out on a couple of characters, um, but. Um, that was one of the questions I was going to raise with you as well, uh, given your sort of like background, given what you've told us before about it. Um, obviously, there must have been something that uh, motivated you to start doing these videos. Um, what was that, and what message do you think you're? Oh, that sounds awfully patronising. What message are you trying to get across uh, in doing so? There was. <sighs> It's it's tough to say uh, the the cartoons in particular. I it was never any grand plan, but um, after seeing you know non stamp collector and and being so yeah you know I was very impressed with with him and I thought well you know I've I've a better artist I could I I don't I didn't think I could match his wit but I thought you know maybe I can um, do some. A little better animations, so that's when I started learning how to. I'm all self-taught with the animations. I just read the tutorials and, and you know figured it out on my own. And I um, oh, started. What do you actually use to animate? It, uh, it's a co program called Anime Studio Eight. Right now, I'm using most of my videos were done with the non-professional version, but I recently upgraded to the professional version, which is well worth it. So, um, um, roughly, how much does that cost? Um, the professional version I think was 150, but most of my animations were done with a $50 version, um, cool. which is well worth it, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I hadn't, I never expected to, to be, you know, for anyone to actually watch them. I, I, I've always, I always liked doing little, you know, skits and bits and stuff, and I always. And I and I did that even when I didn't have an, a big audience. You know, I like I always loved making people laugh. You know, my, whether it was my family or friends, and I would I would do little stand-up bits in front of them sometimes. And and, and you know, YouTube kind of just filled that gap in my life very nicely because then I got this audience, this huge audience that I never expected to have, and and I got to you know do these these little comedy routines that actually not only are they, you know, fulfilling my wish to make people laugh, but they're also something that I'm very passionate about, and that's, you know, uh, debating about about religion and the existence of God. What what sort of feedback do you get from them? Do you, do you get um, lots of YouTube messages sort of like saying, wow, thank you, um, you've made me think and um, changed my opinion? Or uh... Most of my messages are overwhelmingly positive which uh, it's kind of the opposite of what I expected I when I was a smaller YouTube channel I got much more hate mail than <laughs> when I than when I became a big bigger YouTuber. I think I got almost I think nearly 80,000 subs now and um, back when I had a, a you know a couple thousand I got I got more hate mail than I do now which you know I <laughs> And the, the the gist of the hate mail, death threats, or just you're a wanker, you're going to burn in hell, or I got a I got a death threat 
um, from a Muslim guy who uh, he was going to um, cut off my mother's head, um, burn her body, piss on her ashes to put out the fire, and then burn the ashes. So she's going to be dead. And um, so, so, so a mild threat then. Yeah, and um, but hang on, but, hang on, hang on a second. What I don't understand: this is a religion of peace. <laughs> no, it's it's only peaceful to other Muslims. DPR. Well, that's not it. Do, either, does so. doesn't extend to but, non-believers' mothers. But I mean, did did, did this sort of like uh, threat concern you, or did you, did you just think no, it was a joke? No, no, I, it didn't concern me. Um, you know, if someone, I, I tend to think that if someone were really serious about doing something, the last thing they would want to do is warn me about it. But um, the, uh, the, a year later, though, after I got that death threat, the same guy um, contacted me again to apologize and to tell me that he was no longer a believer. Wow, you're kidding. <laughs> no. Yeah, I, I, I can see why you might feel guilty about that. But I mean, I, I, I'm very much with you that, um, but you've got to be a little careful with this. Um, you know, whilst there is this element of the do the barking dogs are not the ones you have to worry about. It's the ones that will just come up and bite you are the ones you have mm -hmm. to worry about. And whilst I would agree that um, it does seem very stupid to actually write a death threat to someone telling them what you're going to do, you know, that's like so professionally stupid, can anyone be that dumb? Um, but then again, um, if it, the people who are going to carry this sort of thing out aren't sane and normal anyway. So you have to be a little bit careful about um, assuming that they work on some sort of sane and rational basis. Well, they want to see but, you squirm, yeah. right? The point is terror. I mean, the point is to, to scare you. Uh, to show that they have power over you, right? And that the the real purpose of death threats yeah. is is the. But the I mean, threat. I I just I I can't believe that anyone would be so stupid. But then again, I, I know there are lots of stupid people out there. But to send you death threats over the internet because everything is traceable once you do it over the internet, and if you're going to actually um, start sounding credible people will take the effort to track it back. Well, let's not be gloomy. It's a season of goodwill. Um, so rather than dwell on death threats, uh, let's take our next caller. Um, after Image. Welcome to the show. Hey, everyone. What are you bringing to the table? I'm hoping you can hear me. We can hear you perfectly, yeah. Excellent. Um, well, firstly, I'll get out the... The quick things, um, thank you to everyone that's here, That uh, all the great work that you guys do. Get all the brown nosing out of the way, as promised. Um, DPR, love the work that you do. The MSF thing is always a great event. I've, yeah, this is the second one I saw for 2012, and that's they're fantastic. Thanks for all your hard work. Concordance, love your videos. Can't wait for every time you get one up. I'm sorry you've had some trouble this year, but yeah, I'm always better breath. I'm always getting people to watch them. Thunderfoot, you got me started into all this stuff. Your Why People Are For Creation is just one of my favorite series. Keep putting me out if you get a chance to. In Dark Matter, you're hilariously funny. And I, again, wait for your stuff. So thank you, everyone, for your work. That's very thank kind you. of you. Thank you. <laughs> All right, now that we've got that out of the way. Um, look, what I really wanted to ask about, um, I mean, we talk a lot about um, 
um, conflicts between what the Bible says and what we know about the world, blah, blah, blah. I wanted to look at something else, something about uh, where, where NASA and a lot of space organizations going is looking for signs of life or life or, you know, we, we're in a, an age where we know exoplanets and everything like that. Um, the question is, is that if there has life has occurred anywhere else, we're getting closer and closer to the date, we'll discover something about it, uh, whether traces of it, extinct traces of it from Mars, maybe even microbes on Mars, maybe there's some, somehow some of it survived somehow. Um, yeah, they, they talk about, um, I think it's Io. Um, we're now seeing th um, planets away and they're talking about detecting atmospheres and working out, you know, chemical reactions, so possibly see the signs of what we'd expect for life. Um, and, and I guess in the short future, I guess there's always a promise that perhaps we can do better and start travelling more, more than just sending probes away in the solar system. Yeah, in the next couple of hundred years, it, it's quite possible that we'll have the understanding of the universe where we can even start to travel and, and live like something out of a, a sci-fi that we all, a lot of us love. So I guess if that happens and we do discover life as it seems like it's, at least on, on paper, a, a good possibility that eventually we will, assuming we don't kill ourselves, how will that affect religion? Will it... Um, remove old religion? Will it? Um, do you think it will impact at all? Will it depend on what we find? Like if we find just traces, people will have cognitive difference. And go, eh, it means nothing or whatever. Or will it actually? Will it will actually make effect and change people's years? Anyway, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on it. You know what'd be funny is if we landed and there were like crosses and cathedrals and little green men walking around with like a, a alien Jesus on the cross, I, I think that would be awesome. But I don't think it's likely, right? So if we run into, let's say, intelligent, sentient life uh, with culture and civilization somewhat comparable to ours, and they didn't believe in the exact same religious beliefs that we do, and why the hell would they? Uh, our own people don't believe in exactly the same thing. It would be pretty obvious to me at that point that Ours is a very colloquial religion, right? That, it, that it's only something that we've come up with, and only some of us have come up with these things. But nothing's going to shake the faith of, of people who depend on religious belief for their, their very value systems, for their, their belief in themselves is somehow based on the fact that they're a, a special snowflake that God created, and God wants nothing but good things for them, no matter what horrible thing happens. So I, I don't think it would have a real effect um, if it's something as simple as bacteria. And I actually think that kind of thing is quite likely. And the reason why I think it, it would be quite likely, if suitable planets are available, uh, what we know about our own planet is that life arose almost immediately in geological terms after the planet was suitable for life. So the processes that occurred occurred again, on a geological scale, very, very rapidly, uh, which to me means that they're probably quite probable in this universe. Um, okay. Uh, a couple of things. First of all, if we do actually get uh, sufficiently technologically advanced to go to other planets, um, it's not unlikely that we will still have this huge disparity of... Yeah, I mean, even now we have on this planet people who will go witch hunting and will actually kill what they think are witches in and we also have walking around on this planet people with iPhones so even if we could get this technology um, to go to other planets I think it's 
um, and likely they'll, they'll, I think it's very likely that religion will all exist in in some way, shape, or form. Um, I would be a little more, uh, I think, uh, skeptical than concordant about life on other planets um, for the, the current re- this reason. Um, yes, it's true that life on Earth arose almost as soon as the conditions were suitable. You know million years or something um, however you have to bear in mind that the earth um, had really quite a lot of energy around um, you know for life you do need to be able to make and break chemical bonds so you do need this uh, range of temperatures um, and on earth you have that from uh, lightning you have it from the sun and you have it from the uh, geothermal energy you go to places um, like Europa, and you don't really. Whilst it's true that you may well have liquid water there, um, I'm not so sure there is the the energies to go high enough to get you the bond breaking um, uh, type energies that you need uh, to get self replication and therefore the possibility of life. And I think that um, it could it could affect religion in two very different ways. Um, the the type of religious thinking that says you know human beings are the are the reason for for the universe to exist that you know we're the center of it all. Um, you know they're going to have a rude awakening. On the other hand, um, suddenly it looks like you know it gives strength to the argument that, you know, the universe was created specifically for life. You know, if we find that, hey, life doesn't just exist on Earth, it exists everywhere, then all of a sudden the universe isn't so inefficient as it seems right now. Or, you know, it could give strength to that side as well. So maybe a stronger argument for deism, a weaker argument for uh, more religious... I would still absolutely. I mean, it's one of those things. The only place that we know that life can exist is on the surface of planets. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, that that that's basically zero percent of the universe. I mean, it's zero percent of the solar system. In fact, even on the planet, the the fraction of the mass of the planet that can actually support life is almost nothing. Um, and even um, just solid matter itself is kind of rare compared to the universe isn't it absolutely yeah i just just for a point of clarification uh, a, a vast majority of the surface of earth is suitable for life it's just that only a very very small fraction is suitable for human life because uh, there's bacteria freaking everywhere there's bacteria miles down into the earth's crust there's uh, bacteria growing in, in Antarctica. There's bacteria, so far as we know, are the only terrestrial colonists. The only Earth colonists are bacteria which were, were recovered from the lens discarded by Apollo 11. Uh, so there are still probably plenty of bacteria on the moon. And uh, in spite of everything we do to avoid it, there are quite probably bacteria on Mars right now. Uh, they're doing a much better job than we are. Now, what, was, what was that about Apollo? 
Yeah, the, the uh, Apollo 11 uh, astronauts took camera and some of the materials were, were left behind uh, for payload reasons. And they did eventually go back and recover some of those uh, in, in future missions. And they discovered uh, bacteria that had survived on the inside of a lens mechanism uh, on one of the cameras. And it had been on the moon for, I don't know how many years, uh, I, several I, I, years. I think that's Surveyor 3 and Apollo 12. Is that and what it was? Second, okay. The, the yeah. second Apollo yeah. landed almost on top yeah, it was meant to go there, but it landed very near one of these um, previous lunar lander things. Yeah. But every time they, the, they send something to another planet, another another satellite, um, they're bringing along with them. That They're doing their absolute best to get rid of everything. And I've, I've been to the facility at NASA where they do decon. I uh, and am they have, so envious of you for that. It's awesome. <laughs> they have the, the, the low pressure uh, right, so where they evacuate right everything. They have the, the hard vacuum. We were, we were actually doing some testing there. So I, I can finally talk about the fact that I was a consultant for NASA on some equipment that was to go on the International Space Station, no longer been funded, so I can talk about it freely. Uh, we were going to put uh, some PCR equipment, uh, polymerase chain reaction, uh, biological Xerox machine. Uh, we were going to put the equipment on the International Space Station, and so we were doing the feasibility testing on, on various smaller units, uh, pre-launch prototypes, uh, and running them through the, the hard vacuum chambers, the decon chambers, uh, what their response was to humidity, and you know, all the different micrograv-type simulations. Uh, was it was one awesome. Pasad Coolest thing I've ever Pasad done. Pasadena? No, no, we actually did all this in Houston. Um, oh. In uh, Space City, as they call it. Still, still very envious. Mm. It was awesome. Green with jealousy. It didn't work out, but uh, it was still the most exciting thing I've done probably in my career to date. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean uh, to. But they, they, they also had those water bear things, um, which went up on the mm -hmm. space shuttle. You know, so these are like little... Um, I don't know. They, I'm sorry, they took water beds on the space shuttle? W water Tardig bears. They're, they're tardigrades. They're, they're little microscopic... Um, animals and they they froze on or presumably froze on the upside on, on the outside of the space shuttle um, and they survived going up into space frozen there for presumably about a week or two and then uh, defrosted when they came back down and survived yeah they can survive in a vacuum they freeze because they've got a lot of these um, cryoprotectorants in them, which makes them fairly resilient to that sort of thing. Um, but I don't know what sort of bug they are. What do they do? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I think they're free livers, aren't they? I mean, they... Well, whilst you're con contemplating that, let's go back to our caller uh, after image. Does it differ much between whether we meet intelligent life, which seems to be most the topic of conversation, or whether it's microbial? Um, like, for instance, when she said that um, Mars probably has a chance, good chance of microbial life, or, or at least signs of it. Yeah, if we discover other signs that it was once alive in Mars, or or um, is even now alive in, in special pockets um, or something like that because it's fairly resilient. Does that make any difference to, like, does, is microbial something that's a lot easier to marginalise from a religious point and think, oh, well, you know, it's just microbial, it doesn't matter? Or is, do you think there are people who go, wait, well, there's life from other places? That makes me think. I don't know. Seth, uh, help us out here if you can. Um, 
You're kidding this. me. No, I'm asking you. I'm supposed a, to speak about microbial life on other planets. Are you, no, are you kidding? The, about the Bible, um, because my understanding is that the uh, majority of Christians uh, believe that only humans get to heaven, not animals. So the 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 uh, the God that they believe in obviously makes some distinction between us and animals. Is that right? Like, like where where would that fit in Genesis, for example? I mean, Genesis doesn't describe. He created the animals. Oh, and he also created some on, you know, Alpha Centauri Seven. Would, would that you think people just, would care? This is just an attempt to get me into the conversation, so I don't feel left <laughs> out. Oh no, 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 I, I, I understand. I, I, I know how it is. I I can do better than this, Seth. Um, um, yeah. So th this is one of the things that always bugged me um, is that you know before uh, the fall of man, there was meant to be no disease. Which means that things like um, oh, whatever syphilis and smallpox um, were around, but they didn't kill people. So how did the fall of man create all of these viruses and bacteria um, that would kill people? I'll do you one better. I was at the Creation Museum a few months ago, and of course you go through. Ken Ham's Guilt Emporium, which is essentially what it is. It, it posits that everything wrong with the world, including weeds, there's a, a display that shows Adam having to till work the earth because after the fall of man, weeds begin to grow from the ground and dinosaurs became carnivorous. They used to be these harmless, happy plant-eating dinosaurs. But no, after the eating of the fruit, no, no, now they begin to eat flesh, and they have a display where the dinosaurs are chewing on each other. I mean, it's, it's absolutely laughable. Where believers often fall in, in terms of, is there life out there, is that they believe that we are the center of all things. In fact, I, I did, produced a video with that very title called The Center of All Things, where it talked about we used to look up at the stars and we used to think that we were, the universe revolved around us. And in truth, there is a real beauty in realizing that it does not, in fact, the universe does not care if we exist. But knowing our place in the cosmos is actually a wondrous and beautiful thing. In the Bible, it says that Adam was given dominion over all of the animals. And I take that to mean dominion over all life, the whole planet, this and that. And... Um, the Bible doesn't really speak to, is there other life out there? It doesn't really deal with it. But I think the implication of there being life elsewhere, let's say there was intelligent life elsewhere. Well, does that mean that there was a Christ figure who had to go to another planet <laughs> whenever they fell or did something wrong? Was there, is there a whole, is there a completely, it's like an alternate salvation story, a parallel thing yeah. going on somewhere? It's no, kind I, of an odd I, concept. I like that. After Jesus got crucified in, in Jerusalem, first of all, he went to America. So he was created <laughs> yeah. Mormon religion. Right. And, and then he went to beat us in Shuri. Where, where I, he I knew a guy. To the Relacrians and... He wrote a uh, Christian fiction book, or he was like a, a, a self-published thing. This was years ago. I don't know if he finished it, but he was writing it at the time, and it was an alternate Adam and Eve story. Yes, we were not the only ones in the universe. There was another Earth-like planet, and there were people on it. And uh, what would happen if 
they had free will and would God have to then create an act of human sacrifice atonement for sin on this other planet and of course it draws a circle around the whole thing like well you know how many shots does he need before he gets it right hell he made man flawed he sticks the the enchanted tree right in front of him and then blames him for being curious as to what it is and what it does then he floods the planet and drowns everybody and then he has to send his son to be executed. I mean, how many shots are we going to give this omnipotent God? Actually, it seems to me like I, I think it was Dark Matter's latest video was absolutely hilarious like that, where, what was it, Jeffrey um, puts the tree of the knowledge of good and evil on the top of a really high mountain, makes the fruit taste really bad, makes the tree really tall. What else does he do, Dark Matter? Yeah, um... <laughs> I think that's about it. But, you know, of course, in the, in the Bible, it says that the tree was in the midst of the garden and the fruit was good for eating, uh, you know. And Didn't he make it stink? Didn't the fruit smell bad? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, Jeffrey made the fruit smell bad. He did everything he could to make it. I, ha I have to ask one question, if I may, Doc. Um, Jeffrey is just such a perfect name. Did, did you come up with that? Uh, it was a moment of inspiration if you did. It's just so funny. Yeah, I just wanted a, you know, a mundane name for Angel. <laughs> I mean, it's not like Eve just did it. I mean, God even allowed the serpent to tempt Eve to talk her up a little bit, you know, to say, hey... Uh, you know, come on, it's going to be... Our. He allowed all of these things to trip them up and then blame them. Uh, can you hear my dog? Uh, blame them because uh, because they were tempted and succumbed as flawed, fallible humans. It's really a, it's a setup. Well, I, what, I, I, what I don't get, Seth, is this. Um, having, as you say, designed this creation with inherent flaws within it, um, it was inevitable something was going to go wrong. He then subsequently condemns all of mankind thereafter as a result of Eve eating fruit. What sort of God is this? <laughs> yeah. I mean, seriously, I mean... Actually, no, Come on, help me here, Seth, because there was a time, obviously, when you believed this. I mean, and, and, and I'm not criticizing you for not questioning no, it. No, you it are. Seems, it I seems am. a madness. No, I'm trying to understand how it was that this didn't sort of, like, register. Well... well we are taught as believers that, that that downfall is a symptom of the larger problem, that we are flawed, sinful people, that we are born with this sin nature, that the eating of the fruit, we, we don't, they don't teach it from the, uh, necessarily from the perspective of, well, it was just a fruit uh, and it was eaten, so you deserve eternal torment. They, they paint it in the larger context of this is really indicative of a flawed sin nature that that you have, and because you are broken, you must now be fixed. That's how they play it, anyway. But we were created in God's image. We can't well, have it both ways, can you? I'm working on a video concept. You know, I almost want to tap Dark Matter on the on the shoulder, but because his visual style would be perfect for this. But but I'm doing like a you know they they say that Adam was created in God's image, which of course obviously brings up the question: Well, well, why would an omnipotent deity floating in the void of space require Two eyes, two ears, a nose, mouth, two arms, two legs, and a penis. I don't, I don't get that. I'm missing something. Bravo! I, I've, <laughs> I've tinkered that idea. I, I mean, it, it's. Um, 
But yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if you're omnipotent, why? Why do you need yeah, Lex, Lex to get you around? Why do you need those if you're omnipotent? And why He's do you need reproductive organs? And he has all of these accoutrements, all of these useful things for living on planet Earth. I, I myself don't get it, but I'm I working on the video they, concept. They, I remember they will tell you. Last, oh, I'm sorry. sorry I, I was going to say they were. They would tell you that that's metaphorical. I'm sure. Um, yeah, they're made in his image cool. in the sense that that people can perceive good and evil, right? Or, or right, right. They have a moral goodness or a soul or whatever. That I think that's how the the more um, Actually, one, of, one, of the, one of the verses in Genesis that I've never been able to understand, uh, and again, Seth, you'll be able to correct me because I'll misquote it, but God, um, I think it's actually Genesis 2, it's sort of like the second um, account of creation. Uh, God says that um, we, we made man and woman, woman in God's image, or something like that. So what is what sexuality is God? Is he a man and a woman? And um, who is he talking to when he says we? Uh, you got me. Here's an even better one. And, and Meg, who's a co-admin at The Thinking Atheist, wrote a great blog, which you can find at thethinkingatheist.com, on the character of Lilith, who is part of the Adam and Eve story or the creation story as far as um, uh, it's not written about in the scriptures that were canonized, but there is there was actually... a a female character in the Garden of Eden before Eve, and her name was Lilith. And Lilith was this sexually liberated, strong character. And she wanted to have sex on top. I'm not making this up. And because because she because she was sexually uh, took the initiative and because she was bold, she was ostracized and kicked out of the garden, and God reset and created Eve. And you should read the blog. It's much too complex for me to cover here. I'd never heard of such a thing in my life, but she documents it. And, of course, the Christians who hear this are just aghast. You know? <laughs> and it tells you something about the culture. I mean, a woman who shows sexual initiative in that, in that era, well, of course she should be ostracized and kicked out immediately. It should be the man who does it all. Uh, I personally, I'm I'm a fan of Lilith. I I think yeah, good for her. She was about 2,000 I, years I was about time. to say, um, I, I don't think many guys would... Um, it, I don't think many guys object when women take the initiative like that. I'm just saying. I'm just well, saying. I, I just let me let me put one quick point in. Uh, I'm just pulling it up on Wikipedia here, but Lilith was a female demon, a seductress in the Mesopotamian Ooh. religion. So it's an obviously syncretion uh, of prior beliefs, and they're probably a way of uh, stealing the thunder away from. The Mesopotamian, you know how they did that in in, in ancient um, Hebrew, is they would turn you know, Baal into Baalzebul and turn it into a, a demon in the Christian religion. So it's an obvious syncretism. Plagiarism I, is probably a hallmark of the Christian all scriptures. religions. Yeah, yeah, probably all of them. Yeah. Well, That's I mean, I, I said this earlier, but you know, the ultimate plagiarism is there was only one God, and then just adding the extra line, and Allah, uh, and Muhammad is his messenger. Uh, <laughs> how uninventive can you get? Yeah. You know, to just tag your religion onto someone else's. But anyway, coming briefly back to the um, uh, God makes man in his own image. Um, I remember now some of the r rough stuff that I had um, put out years ago, 
And it, it, the reasoning went along these lines, you know, first of all, why would God need a mouth to sort of squeeze stuff in and an asshole to squeeze stuff out of? But also, you, you, this, this is going back to the Venom Fang X days when he would make arguments like, God is infinitely just and therefore yeah, any minor transgression warrants infinite punishment or reasoning along those lines. And so the thought process came along, well, if God is you know, like man and he's infinite in size, well, anything times infinity is infinity, which means that God is an infinite asshole. <laughs> hey, can I speak to the plagiaristic tendencies very quickly? This is not just true in terms of religious scriptures. It's true in it's very true in terms of, uh, in my experience, the Christian culture. And here's here's my experience in a nutshell. I spent a decade as a Christian broadcaster. I was KXOJ 100.9 FM as host of their morning show for most of that decade, and the. The industry used to be these mom-and-pop bands. It was called contemporary Christian music, meaning that in the late 60s and 70s, they finally got away a little bit from church organs and pianos, and they began to do what rock and pop music was doing at the time, right? They were well behind the pop scene, but they, were, they, were, they thought, hey, this is popular music. We're going to create a godly version of it. And that gave birth to Larry Norman and other rockers, the Resurrection Band, Petra, whatnot. And in the Christian music industry... Everything that we played on the radio was a direct plagiarism of what was popular on pop radio. It's usually about six months to a year behind. Uh, a great example was uh, the song We Are the World, which was a USA for Africa uh, multi-artist anthem that was done in the uh, 80s. Michael Jackson, Quincy Jones, and all those people put it together, and they raised tens of millions of dollars to aid Africa. And within a few months, Christian Music got all of its artists together. They put them all in a studio and did the very same type of song and released it the very same way. We had artists that looked like pop and secular artists. We had artists that sounded like pop and secular artists. We are uh, essentially, the church was trying to find out what's hot. What are people buying in the marketplace? Let's do that. And plagiarism seems to be one of the hallmarks of the church even today. Yeah, I mean, it's also, um, I think, one of the easiest ways, if all you're interested in is um, you know, just generating traffic, you just leech on whatever's popular. You take a look around what's popular. And, you know, no, like, look, you take a love story, and you take out the word baby, and you stuck, stick in Jesus, and you've got a Christian rock song, right? Yeah. Well, in uh, radio, for, we used to call them... We used to call them God or girlfriend songs. They were popular in the 90s where they could be either. They talk about love, but it could be love up or love out. You know, and, and that way, that was what they called a crossover hit. They wanted the pop radio stations to pick them up. That explains songs like Amy Grant's Baby, Baby, and Everything Changes by Kathy Tricoli and many others. They were desperate to be recognized in the pop marketplace. But, you know, Christianity doesn't have a lot new to offer, so it takes the temperature of what people are responding to. What are they wearing? It, you know, they'll, they'll dress their pastors and youth pastors and band members in the types of clothing that are hot. And it's, it's ultimately, they, they're just echoing what they've already seen done elsewhere sooner and often better. Sorry. Did you say you had a, a, some kind of creationist on a couple of weeks ago? We had two. We had uh, Rolf Lamper, who is the head of the Swedish Creationist Association, and his son Samuel. What are the studying changes? for biochemistry? 
studying what, what are the exchanges school. like? Uh, are you talk? Is it bouncing off? Is there any dialogue, or is it mostly well, you let the, you let them you give them enough rope to hang themselves? So to well, say. I think this work? is an interesting question, and, and let, let's move on to this um, point. Um, what what is the purpose of uh, having someone like that on the show? Well, for me, there are a couple of reasons. Firstly, it uh, gets rid of the criticism that we have that we never get um, any theists on the show. Uh, and secondly, I think it, it serves some purpose in exposing the weaknesses of their arguments. Now, um, it's extraordinary no, I love it. when we have uh, Sight and uh, Tenbruggen, Kate on, um, and Eric, uh, I think about March of this year, and then we had um, Rolf and Samuel um, later on. We got very mixed feelings. Some people enjoyed the show, other people thought we were just uh, ridiculous to have them on and it was a waste of time. So in a way you can't win. But I think that it would be disingenuous of us to uh, continually present a show in which we did not allow uh, conflicting contrary arguments to be put forward to. Uh, well, I enjoy it. I, I, I also I, must say this is something that I've uh, meant to mention when I read out the list at the very beginning of those that we have had on the show. There's a couple of people that we have invited who have not got back to us, and we would love to have them on the show, and they are William Lane Craig, Ray Comfort, and Ken Ham. All of them have been sent invitations uh, to appear on the show. Not one of them has got back to us. So, I mean, are we to be criticised for inviting people on. I mean, this is another point, isn't it? When when you do get a theist on, um, the criticism you will face potentially from other theists is, oh, well, they're not representative of what my views are. They're not real Christians. But Sometimes those people are a gift. I, I did a, a podcast. I was a guest on someone else's podcast a month ago, and he is a hardcore Pentecostal. He believes in signs and visions and and speaking in tongues and all of these things. And so he wanted to do a, uh, wanted me to be a guest on his show. And I agreed under the condition that it would be played in its entirety and unedited, and I would be able to record it on my end and then play it for my audience. And under, this is a problem. And, and you guys have borne witness to the fact that many times when you debate a theist for their particular shows, then you are taken into the editing room and unfairly sliced to pieces. And um, so anyway, I... You know, I, we had a, about a 90-minute conversation, and no one was shouting, nobody interrupted. But listening to him speak and having tens of thousands of listeners hear him speak helped free thought. <laughs> it helped rationalism. It helped atheism. The more he spoke, the more ridiculous his points became. And it was, it, those types of people are quite often, I think, a gift to uh, the secular movement. That, that was our experience with the Lambus and, and with Eric Hovind and Seitz and Bruggenkate. It, it really wasn't the counter-arguments because we had no intention. We never had the intention of changing the person's mind. The point is to have the ideas and hash them out and evaluate. Let, let people watching evaluate the arguments and contrast them and see which side it is that is presenting data that has rational, reasonable arguments, and which one eventually resorts to this sort of silliness, these nonsensical positions, or Did Cade, did Cy give you that kind of, that, well, you know, I, you know, I, I, 
you can't be expected to understand what I'm trying to tell you because you you are not a believer and therefore do not have the Holy... I mean, did, did he give you that song and dance? Because I just wanted to reach through and just slap the guy. <laughs> yeah, he gave us the tag argument. I mean, that's that's why we, we brought him on, is was shopping it around at the Reason Rally, and we wanted to bring him on and give him a chance. We wanted everyone to hear it at one time yeah. and go through the refutations of it, basically, to give him a chance uh, to immunize everyone watching the show against that particular argument the next time they're ambushed on the street, they'll be better prepared. Um, and I think it's, it's worth hearing those things in advance. Uh, even if they're frustrating or annoying, they'll be a hell of a lot more frustrating or annoying if someone pops them on you at a party or corners you uh, at, at dinner sometime and some acquaintance of yours think this is the most amazing argument ever, you will have formulated a response to that. Uh, and I think that's that's worth worthwhile. Well, the smug, uh, superior mannequin stares of the presuppositionalists make me... I mean, just the, the word presupposing yeah. is, yeah. is the away, antithesis. It? Uh, it's the antithesis well, of what rational living should be. I want to go yeah. to Dark. Sorry. I want to go, please. I want to go to Dark on this because Dark um, is, okay. despite his um, modesty, he's he's very good on philosophical arguments. Um, what's well, your I'm view sorry. on presuppositionalism? I'm sorry, but conco nothing concordance concordance says really matters, seeing as how he doesn't know if somebody's controlling his mind. <laughs> so sorry, man. <laughs> You need the Holy Spirit to understand it, and of course, you have yes, to. Uh, it, <laughs> yeah. Whereas, of course, everything that Sai says is completely valid because he, everything he's saying might be being controlled by his supernatural being. The voices yeah. in his head told him so is essentially what he's telling us. Right. I mean, for me, it's, it's worse than that, actually. What he says is, and I asked him this many times when he was on the program, and the answer was always, always the same. How do you know that you've got it right and um, other people have not? And his only answer was, it has been revealed to me in such a way so that I know it is true. Hmm. How do you deal well, with that argument? Well, look, look, I mean, I, I think that all deals are off when your proof of God is, if I assume that God exists, then I've proved that God exists. I mean, we, we is, you know, it's the presupposition is that God exists. Yeah. Well, um, okay. Um, let's see if we can substitute anything else in there and come to the conclusion that it exists. Let's say presuppose that the flying spaghetti monster exists, therefore the flying spaghetti monster exists. Not a terribly convincing argument. Well, and we cover often that anecdotal evidence is not really evidence. I had a personal experience. The voice is telling me. I, it has been revealed to me personally. It is no more credible than someone who had had a visit from his spirit animal or who had seen, you know, had visions of Elvis or little green men or, you know, something else. I mean, I'm, I'm going to need more. And then they come at me with, and Cy was guilty of this. It's, well, you're not going to be able to understand the concept of God because you are unsaved. But the, the salvation message is in Scripture. I, the unsaved, now cannot properly understand God's scriptural message which is required for me to get saved so that I can understand God's scriptural message. It's this weird 
sort of black hole that you fall into if you follow that line of reasoning. Well, now, actually, and that's actually part of his belief. He's Presbyterian, and, and they do believe in predestination. And that is that God will grant you the ability to understand God's message if you are predestined. Uh, so, that, I mean, that's, that's part of his specific theology. I don't that's think Eric shares the same theology. That's even worse. That, that means that why bother going on mission trips? Why right. bother having evangelical sermons? It is predetermined who will be saved. Well, I, I, won't, I won't go into it. I was raised Presbyterian, so I, I, in my confirmation class, that was something that, that we went through. Um, and, of course, the argument makes perfect sense at the time uh, until you start really poking holes at it. And if you're unafraid to poke holes in it, it it's, it's, it's a bit silly. Yeah, I mean, time trap. It's a looper. For me, um, you know, one of the great uh, parodies of it is the ghost that never lies. You know, if the ghost that never lies exists and he tells me the ghost that never lies is real, can I trust with 100% certainty that the ghost that never lies exists? <laughs> um, I'm going to be laying in bed tonight looking at the ceiling thinking about that. Be like, <laughs> just can't process it. <laughs> And if the ghost that never lies then tells me that your God doesn't exist, does your God then cease to exist? Yeah, I, I, mean, need, I, need, I need an adult you beverage, know, people. It's, a, it's actually, you know, if you think about all the other religions that where people have had divine revelations that have conflicted with other people's divine revelations, I mean, it makes perfect sense. It does. All oh, right, I'm, let's, let's I'm move talking on. about... You know what I'm talking about. Of course. Um, let's move on then, uh, Dark. Let me take your views on this, because it's not one I'm entirely sure that you've um, made a video on, on Dickley or Dark Antics channel, uh, but it's one that has cropped up uh, many times over 2012 on the show, and that is the idea of whether it, there is such a thing as objective morality. Um, that's... Um you know, a lot more complex than it would seem on the surface. I, I think that, um, all right, it, human uh, life in general. I mean, it's an objective fact that it can be, it can flourish or it can be destroyed. And if we decide that it's, you know, better for uh, for human beings to to flourish and, and to, and to to be benefited rather than for harm to come to us. That's about as close to objective as we can be. And I think a significant moral basis can be drawn from that in that if we can provide evidence for a moral action, which we're debating about, that it will be a benefit. If we can provide evidence that will be more beneficial than harmful, then I think we can call that a morally good thing, and and be safe in our in our assertion. Yeah, that it's and, and 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 in using that uh, definition or that description, you are obviously relying, um, so far as I understand, on what uh, Sam Harris's argument is. But uh, my understanding is that Sam Harris's argument is totally different to, for example, William Lane Craig. William Lane Craig thinks that objective morality seems to be floating around in the ether. Uh, given to us 
um, mm -hmm. by a god. Now, in, in, if that's the definition of objective morality, can you see any possible reason to support that argument? Because I cannot. I mean, it, it's it's not really objective at all. Then it's up to the whim of this this other mind, this this God's mind, you know, and it, it, he's been appointed as the one who gets to define what is moral. So, you know, in we can see from the Bible, you know, if the Bible's true, that he uh, he he said, "Do as I." say not as I do type of guy and you know you lead by example at least you should he doesn't do that why doesn't God lead by example why is why is he you know wiping out the earth with a flood or why, why isn't he trying to instead of helping someone understand why they shouldn't commit evil acts and and, and giving them insight, uh, why, why is he just wiping them out or letting them do whatever they want to do? Or, you know, you know we like to say free he, will. He, but he, wipes, he wipes them out in a genocide, a genocide that is beyond all genocides that we've ever known, and then uh, issues commandments that you shan't kill. Very odd. Thunder. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, um, it's easiest to explain these things if you actually move it on to something that is much more easily quantifiable, like height or weight. And let's take height as the more simpler of the examples. Um, if you come across someone who is um, 12 foot 6 tall, are they tall or short? And is that a really objective measure? Are, are they objectively tall or not? Most people say, yeah, they're objectively tall. Um, but in reality, you're just measuring it versus a population, right? In what? Why should you actually, uh, if you're measuring them versus, say, the height of I don't know the Eiffel Tower, they're very short. But you don't. You measure them versus um, the on the the, the the population. There is an average height for the population. Sure, there's a spread of of heights. Um, but you know, once you get into whatever the one or two percent extremes, you you call them objectively tall, even though it's only measured relative to a population. And the same thing so true of morality, that um, uh, there there is an ensemble behaviour um, that will form on that will fall on something that looks like a bell curve. And it's the people on the extremes are what you would call extremely good and extremely evil, and everyone else is more or less in the middle. Um, and some of those uh, uh, curves are, are much more plastic than others. So, for instance, you get things like, is killing good or bad? Um, well, uh, it, you know, it's very heavily biased to killing is bad. Um, but even at that, you can... Um, has everyone here seen the film Watchmen? Yeah. yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, I mean, so the end of Watchmen um, does Ozymandias, right? So Ozymandias basically decides that in order to... He's the smartest man on the planet. He knows with absolute certainty that if he kills um, uh, 20 million people, 
that he will save the entire planet from nuclear Armageddon. Uh, did he make the right decision? And if you're laid out with those exact choices of murdering, uh, choosing to murder 20 million or having the death of 6 billion um, as the default option, then it, it's obvious. You, you, you kill the 20 million. Um, now, did, did, did killing people just become morally acceptable? Or, you know... That speaks to the very first argument I've made on my Dark Antics channel, is that according to Christianity, according to Jesus Christ, only a few people, the few are going to you know, be saved. The vast majority aren't. So is it justifiable? I mean, is Christianity, the, the system, justifiable? We're talking about sacrificing the majority for the benefit of the few. And I'd say no. That's immoral. The opposite uh, is true. Yeah. Um, but, but, I mean, I, I, I would actually love to actually hear what someone like Craig's response would be to the Ozymandias dilemma. I mean, we, actually, uh, Dark Matter, were you saying that um, what Ozymandias did, was it right or wrong? Um, what I say is that know you know six billion or seven billion people are going to die and the only way to save them is to kill 20 million people then you I mean you have to there's no choice otherwise seven billion people are gonna die what's worse seven billion or 20 million I mean yeah. to me, I have to say this sounds just like a um, variation of the trolley problem but um, I have to say, on that note, I am going to start trying to bring things up. Can I go back first to the caller and thank him very much for his patience? Uh, I hope, to a degree, we managed to answer your questions. And thank you very much for the call. Wow, we've overrun by an hour and ten minutes. Um, so, let's see if we can wrap it up. Firstly, by me giving thanks to um, all of the people that have appeared on the show, in particular the last two that are still with us, Dark Matter 2525 and The Thinking Atheist. Thoughts for 2013. What are your hopes, desires, aspirations, etc.? Um, we'll start with the um, Thunder Concordance and we'll go on to our special guests. Thunder, th 2013. Um, 2013. Uh, yeah, it's going to be a good year. Okay, that's the briefest he's ever been. Thank you. Concordance. <laughs> Uh, well, so I've, uh, you, some of you may have noticed that I haven't made videos in a long time. Uh, I'm going to get back in the saddle. I've, I've had some more stuff. There's a lot of exciting stuff going on scientifically in my life. I'm going to actually start talking a little bit more now that uh, a colleague of mine has, has discovered who I am. Uh, the secret is that I feel like I can talk a little bit more about my work. Uh, I'm going to do a series on uh, fallacies. Uh, that I think would would help in terms of critical thinking, um, and, and the the one thing I, I want to make a prediction about is that this year will be a very big year for um, Mormon issues, uh, and I'd like you all to keep an eye out on the fundamentalist um, uh, Latter Day Saints group, uh, which apparently are preparing for some sort of a an end of the world event. Uh, they're a group that are known to be uh, both violent and self-destructive. Uh, 
So keep an eye out on what's going to happen there. It's a, it's a bit troubling. Um, and then, on a positive note, uh, 2012 has been a, a great year for, for me, uh, and I'm looking forward to what the next year will hold. Thank you very much. Um, Dark Matter, let's go to you next. Um, I'm not sure what 2013 will hold. I hope that it's a good year, and I hope the economy improves. And um, Glad to see that the world didn't end uh, with never expected it to that's the funny thing about those prophecies is uh i mean it's one thing that we know is going to happen eventually it's just yeah. <laughs> it's funny to see the, the, the all the predictions come and go it's gonna happen no doubt about it and it comes and goes but anyway well, that was funny we all expected that to come and go and nothing to happen i'm sure actually, just just and, so now i was actually thinking of making a completely pseudo-science video with lots of jargon and gobbledygook um, and graphs showing that the world will end and the only way that people can actually stop the world from ending is to buy t-shirts with special little codes in them and when you distribute <laughs> them around the world it'll, it'll prolong the end of the world so the only way you can stop the end of the world is to buy t-shirts Well I was in a uh, discussion on another program uh, recently, and the end of the world predictions uh, came up, and I said I hadn't checked it out, but I said I'm sure the next end of world prediction won't be that far away. I did look it up. I don't have time to do it now, but I can assure you it is somewhere around the 21st of May. It is a prediction made by someone who is a Christian and who has made previous uh, predictions in uh, 2009 and 2010, but he now realizes he got his sums wrong, and it's actually 2013, around the 21st, 23rd of May sort of time. So that's the next one we have to look forward to. Uh, uh, Seth, finally you. Um, your your hopes, aspirations for 2013. Well, my personal plan is to wait to see what Concordance, Thunder, Dark Matter, and you put out so that I can then plagiarize your ideas and and use them for myself i mean i'm uh you know <laughs> well, well i come up with repurpose, original idea repurpose Seth. <laughs> um, creatively I, repurpose the ideas i have made a commitment for 2013 personally to have a little more of a measure of balance in and and all of you as producers may know the maintaining i mean the 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 thinking atheist community is is near and dear to my heart. I, I they are a part of me. I I need them, and um, and it's an amazing privilege to be a part of it. But I have found that as a single individual over the course of the last three some years, nonstop, it's unsustainable. And uh, and I just got engaged. I'm I'm I have a family. You know, I have all, I have a life. I have all these things I want to do. I think for 2013, you will That's probably. Very... Seth, that's very selfish of you, you know. I, and it is, it is, uh, and I'll admit that it's selfish. I, I want to be able to have a life. Uh, I'm, I'm kidding. And uh, so I, I'm, my hope is, is that, is that I'm able to maybe bring in uh, some key people, maybe some people who are have specific gifts who can help me sort of carry the load, and then perhaps make contributions far beyond what I myself have been able to make and, and who knows what it, how it will evolve and it's going to be an interesting sort of experiment to see what happens in the coming months and years but I'm very excited about 2013 and and uh, I have I've certainly have high hopes for uh, 
for this community and for all of yours as well. And I will finish on my aspirations. I hope to be able to get to the Atheist Convention in Texas in March, which will give me an opportunity, I hope, um, to meet um, all of you, um, including people I've never met before. I know I've met you, Seth. Um, I'd love to meet you again. Dark Matter, I'm hoping there'll be an opportunity to meet you as well, and also you, Concordance. So that's that's what I'm looking forward to in 2013. But I'm going to end the show now. I have to. We've overrun by, as I say, an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, can I just finish by thanking everyone uh, for uh, watching Great the show, show for guys. turning up, um, for all of those who have appeared on the show. And also, uh, I have to give a huge thank out to two people who work away wonderfully behind the scenes um, and have done a wonderful job in 2012 on very few occasions have we um, lost uh, connection or the program has broken down which um, was not what happened in previous years and uh, the thanks go to Tony and Ben uh, particularly Tony who works um, so regularly bringing this show to you uh, so huge thanks to Tony I wish everyone a very happy new year uh, we will be back on the 6th uh, I'm not entirely sure whether I will be able to make it on that date, but um, the show will go on uh, without me, which I'm sure for a lot of people will be a good thing. But on that bombshell, uh, please, thumbs up, everyone, uh, for all our special guests that have turned up. Um, we will try for next year to get uh, some more interesting hosts on as well. Uh, Seth has uh, already agreed to uh, appear. I'm sure we'll be able to persuade Dark Matter. David Silverman has agreed to appear. Um, and also Phil Moriarty so there's uh, another four special guests to look forward to in the coming year uh, thank you all very much indeed on that bombshell, hopefully Tony is around, I know that he was going off to watch a uh, football game on the television and I hope he's still around so he can actually press the end show button, otherwise we could be stuck here for some time, on that bombshell thank you all very much indeed <laughs>